That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, just when you thought it was Friday, it was safe to kind of focus on the Super Bowl. Chip Kelly jumped in the transfer portal. College football off the rails, and no greater evidence than the UCLA head football coach, what used to be a marquee job, deciding he's better off at Ohio State with Ryan Day, the Ohio State head coach as his boss. Ryan Day, formerly of the University of New Hampshire, he played for Chip Kelly when he was a player. They know each other. And I'm calling this a higher ground move by Chip Kelly for a number of reasons. The least of which is the fact that he and his athletic director, Martin Jarmon, never seemed to get along. I'm not sure they were even talking. I had a Pac-12 athletic director tell me at Pac-12 Media Day, I said, who has the worst relationship? among the Pac-12 football coaches and their athletic directors. This guy told me not even close. He said the guy at UCLA doesn't even talk to his athletic director. We're going to get in the weeds on that later in the show. Mark Shipper, fifth down college football, will be joining us from Chicago. He's done some reporting on the fractured relationship between Chip Kelly and his athletic director. But I just think it's, it's... You know, as we look at UCLA, what does it say about college football? That Chip Kelly is trading the beach for the high ground at Ohio State. I've got a few takeaways. I think uh, there was a flood of headaches at UCLA. Certainly, we've seen coaches leave Boston College to go to the NFL and declare, hey, I just wanted to get back to coaching. Nick Saban looking around at Alabama going, eh, don't need this anymore. David Shaw looking around at Stanford going, I can't win here, getting out. We've seen this. We've seen it in basketball. We've seen it in football. But is the industry healthier? If a coach like Chip Kelly views going from being the head coach at UCLA to the offensive coordinator at Ohio State as a good career move, I'm I'm just asking, is the industry healthy? Very Big Ten, SEC-centric as well. How will UCLA react to this? Um, I, they, you know, they're scrambling right now. I think Martin Jarman, the AD at UCLA, knew this was coming. I mean, we all saw Chip Kelly auditioning for jobs uh, with the Commanders, with the Seahawks, um, you know, Iowa, and now Ohio State. And I don't think the Bruins are surprised by Chip Kelly getting out. But you're now faced with trying to keep the fan base connected, sell tickets for next season generate gift-giving, hold the roster together, while your football coach is signaling to everybody that you can't win at UCLA. It's just not possible. They've got to move quickly. 
Um, uh, you know, and I can't, I, I couldn't help but think also about, you know, guys like Jed Fish who went to Washington, Brennan who went for, to Arizona. They would have been finalists, but certainly state for Michigan State. Looks like he jumped the gun here because he would have not only been a candidate at Washington, he would have been a candidate at UCLA. He would have, might have been a front of the line candidate at UCLA. When it comes to regrets, I think Jonathan Smith is probably, he's been out recruiting. He's back with his family, I'm told today. But I, uh, probably sitting around going, gosh, I grew up in Southern California. That would have been the perfect job for me. Uh, by the way, Jonathan Smith's buyout at Michigan State, $7 million between now and December 1st. After that, it goes to $6 million, drops a $1 million a year every year. So maybe UCLA goes with an interim coach. Uh, but whatever they decide to do, they've got 24 to 48 hours to do that uh, before they start to get raided by Oregon, Washington, USC, Ohio State, and whoever else wants their players off their roster. The college football landscape is pointing away from us again, pointing away from the Pacific time zone. Uh, I think Oregon, Washington, and USC are interesting cases, and I think of all the four schools leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten, Oregon's the only one that isn't a dumpster fire at this point. I think Chip Kelly wins at Ohio State. I think it's like a one- or two-year thing for him. I think he knew that he was a game over 500 at UCLA. He had a chance to get out, had a chance to get out with a winning record, had a chance to go to Ohio State, and I think he viewed that as better than coming back to UCLA. Um, you know, as a dead man walking, bad relationship with his AD, probably a one-year deal at UCLA as well. I want your phone calls. What does it mean? What did you think about? What is going on with college football? What do you make of it? And what does UCLA do? 503-417-7575. Stephen Vaughn in the hot seat today. Stephen, um, give me an idea what your reaction was when you saw Chip Kelly to Ohio State. You know, it was a little shocking that he went to be uh, another university's offensive coordinator. Like, I kind of, I got the NFL job. I, I understood, like, hey, I'm going to go up a level, go to the NFL, where it is all about coaching. Not necessarily about recruiting and about NIL, but about coaching. But to take a job at Ohio State in the same conference that you were already in, it is, I don't know that it's a downgrade, but it is a little interesting. I feel like, John, and I don't know any of this, but it seems like Ryan Day probably promised him, like, hey, you don't need to go out and recruit all the time. Like, it, we have recruiters. We have the money to back all these recruits that we're going to try, try to get here at Ohio State because we are Ohio State. Like, we have all the backing, so you don't have to go, you know, all out, all out and recruit all the time. It's going to be more about coaching for you. Because or else, if, if it's not that, I don't know why he would leave just to go to another offensive coordinator job. Like, I get he didn't have a good relationship with Martin Jarman, but I don't know. It seemed like a weird move that he would go to another university to be an offensive coordinator. Like, I just, I understood the NFL one, John. I didn't really get the going to the same conference to be a coordinator. Well, I think it tells you how miserable, first of all, he was at UCLA. And I think, you know, we've all probably been in situations with employment or Otherwise, where you look around and you're like, this just isn't working. And I'm, you know, the first port in a storm kind of situation. Uh, we all know that Chip Kelly's not a recruiter. I think his record's a game over 500, and I think in six years, and I think he finally climbed back to 500, got a game over 500 at the end of the year. And then I think he looked around and went, okay, this is a losing proposition. I'm going to go to the Big Ten. I'm going to get dominated in the Big Ten. This is not a good job, this UCLA job, when you put it in the Big Ten Conference. And and in a year, Stephen, you know, his athletic director is going to fire him. His athletic director tried to push him out a year ago, and I think Chip knows he's got one year at UCLA. Is he going to be better positioned 
for the next job if he stays at UCLA and goes five and seven? Or is he better positioned if he goes to Ohio State, they make the playoff, maybe they win a national championship. Suddenly, Chip Kelly's a hot commodity. Like, you know, I think he's probably taking a view going, hey, this is a year down the road. Am I better off in a year coming off an Ohio State offensive coordinator thing? Am I more attractive as a candidate there? Or am I more attractive as a candidate uh, with a college team? And keep in mind, he just finished interviewing with the Commanders, the Seahawks, among others. I have to think his question to them was, hey, uh, I didn't get the job, but in that interview, I guarantee you it came up. But Chip Kelly said, you know, what do you need to see from me to hire me as a coordinator? And maybe they said, we need to see you call plays again. Hey, John, maybe, and, you, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but does Chip want to be a head coach still? Because that, that was the vibe I got, that he didn't necessarily want to be a head coach. I mean, I get that the whole situation was terrible down at UCLA, but to take another college offensive coordinator gig, it seems like to me like he wants to get back to just coaching. Is that the ultimate goal? Do you think he get back to be a head coach? And not only that, but the job of a college head coach is not the same job that he that was five years ago. Like It's just a way different job with the portal and NIL. And his Chip Kelly's comment to me, and I wrote this today at johnconzano.com, but Chip Kelly's comment to me was, you know, I, I had joked with him in our last conversation. He was going out recruiting, and I said, you know, you know, you better get get on a plane, go to the coldest place in the country, find the biggest human beings that you can find, and tell them, "Hey, uh, come see the beaches at UCLA." And and his comment back was, "NIL trumps, you know, defeats weather. Like, you know, it doesn't matter. These kids are going to Siberia if you give them enough money." And and so I think he's looking at like that job of a head coach in college is not what it used to be. I don't know if he still wants to be a head coach. But he, I think he clearly misses being a coach because that's what he got in it for. He's not the CEO type. He's not the, let me shake hands, let me talk to the media, let me go work the boosters, let me raise some NIL dollars. Some coaches are that way. They want to be the CEO. They don't want to roll up their sleeves. They don't want to be involved like in, you know, day to day, you know, teaching, uh, you know, positioning coach type situation. And some guys, do want to get in there and roll up their sleeves. And Chip has always struck me as a guy who wants to tinker. He wants to have his hands on the offense. And I think at Ohio State, with Ryan Day, who trusts him immensely, he's going to have a chance to call plays, have his hands right there on the offense. And, you know, to your point, if he wants to be a head coach, you tell me, all right, you're hiring and you're in the NFL in a year. Uh, you know, do you, Ohio State wins a national championship. You're more interested in Chip Kelly or if Chip Kelly at 5-7 and seven, UCLA. Yeah, I think you make a lot of sense there. I, I think the answer would be Ohio State. If you make the playoff, you make a good run, and you know somehow you get Ohio State to have an NFL-caliber quarterback, and you're looking at it, you're like, all right, well, maybe Chip can do it again as a head coach in the NFL. I just It, it just came as a shock. You know, just not, It kind of came out of nowhere. I was expecting the NFL offensive coordinator, but I think you're right on this. And it'll be interesting to see what Chip does, because you're right. Chip, like, has never been a, even a great recruiter. Like, he was a fine recruiter when he was at Oregon. He was fine yeah. at UCLA. He never he's okay. Was, he, yeah, he was okay. He was never great, and so it just... I feel like this job, Brian Day had to promise him some things like, hey, man, this is you're going to be a coach on this staff. You're not going to be the recruiter, and I think it probably is going to fit Chip Kelly really well. And you're right. Now I would say Ohio State, they've lost to Michigan the last three years, I believe. They, uh, they're going all in right now. They're, they're, bringing, they're bringing out the big bucks to try to get, uh, get that dub over Michigan this year. All right, in the BCS era and the college football playoff era, so basically talking about the last 20 years of college football, there's only been one team that has played for a national championship that did not have a first-round NFL draft pick in the subsequent draft. 
it was Oregon under Chip Kelly. In 2011, they played Auburn. They had a second-round pick uh, in LaMichael James, who goes in the next draft. They had no first-round draft picks. You know, the team they played against, you know, had guys in the first round, guys in the second round. Like, it's just, I'm really curious to see what Chip Kelly can do with some guys. And he's going to have some guys at Ohio State. Now, I, I don't think if you're an Oregon fan, you love what what just happened because Ohio State just got a little better. And there's some, you know, there's some knowledge there with Chip Kelly coming over to Ryan Day. I think it's a really smart hire by Ryan Day because Chip Kelly knows USC. He knows, uh, he knows Jed Fish. He knows uh, Dan Landing in Oregon. He's coached against him here a couple of seasons. And now Ohio State is not just working off film. And, and you know, hey, Ohio State's got a guy in the room who's game-planned against these teams and knows a little bit of these coaches. So I think it's a really good hire by Ohio State. Um, I understand it. I also think you have to know that Chip Kelly is, is quirky and different, and the things that appeal to most head coaches are probably not going to appeal to him. Um, you know, my uh, text exchanges with him are weird. Send me a picture of a football he got from his mother on Christmas. Like, you know, I'm not going to get that from Kyle Whittingham at Utah. I'm not going to get that from Jonathan Smith at Michigan State. Uh, you know, but he's he's just different. He wants to talk about different things. And I here's another thing that I thought was a marker of Chip Kelly maybe not being happy at UCLA. He suddenly started speaking out more in the last year. He went on his rant about the college football playoff, how football needs to splinter away from the rest of the sports. He uh, came on the podcast with Wilner and me and uh, discussed, you know, how how sad he was about the breakup of the Pac-12 conference and loss of the nostalgia and the history. He, um, you know, he had just kind of stepped out a little bit and it was sounding a little dangerous, sounding like a guy who, you know, didn't care. And sometimes you get that with a coach who's, a veteran coach who has a lot of job security. But I'm now going, gosh, he must really not have cared what Martin Jarmon and UCLA thought because he was out there as UCLA was going, we're going to the Big Ten, this is awesome for us. Chip Kelly was going, this is terrible. We've lost 108 years of history. Um, that football should just splinter away. It's ridiculous. He wasn't exactly banging the drum with the company line. And so that jumps out to me now. That, you know, if you're Chip Kelly, maybe he just really was that unhappy working at UCLA, working alongside Jarman. And I think it's really interesting that he went this late in the year to make the decision to leave. It absolutely hoses UCLA in a way that, you know, they, they now have to defend the portal. And the coaching hires and the dominoes that all fell during the last uh, few weeks, in, in, uh, going back really to early December... Uh, they're all done. And so, you know, you've left UCLA in this position where they've got to go out and scramble a little bit themselves. Now, Martin Jarman, if he's smart, kind of was listening to the – had his ear to the ground doing some listening in the last couple of weeks. He couldn't have been shocked that Chip Kelly was out. In fact, I was told that Jarman showed up at a couple of the Pac-12 conditioning workouts. Kelly was not around. He's off interviewing for jobs. And Martin Jarman went down, and he was kind of hobnobbing with the football players – just letting himself be seen, and I think that was very intentional by the AD, just basically going, hey, somebody's here, I got you, you know, because he's going to have to stand in front of those players now and say, hey, give me 72 hours to find the next head coach. Well, 
and I'll do that. Well, where do they turn? Because it just seems like it would be such an impossible job to hold on to any type of player that you had at UCLA and the recruits, you know, the recruiting cycle just finishing up. Like, who's going to take that job? It just seems like an impossible spot going to the Big Ten where you're going to be a bottom oh, they're three. They're going to get killed. Oh, yeah, they're bottom third killed. team. Yes. Like, uh, this, this job is going to be impossible. I can't imagine any – really good coach saying, yeah, I want to leave my spot where I've already done all this recruiting to go to UCLA right now. I think if you're Martin Jarma and you turn to Ken Norton Jr. And you, uh, you, um, you know, you or basically. Or is interim the way and just go in with the interim coach this year and then say, we're going to well, start brand new next season. That could be your play. And I, and I raised that in print today because if Jonathan Smith is the guy you want or Jed Fish is the guy you want, uh, you know, another year gives you an opportunity to kind of see how it's going for those guys, save a million dollars on uh, their buyouts, and, you know, and see who else comes available. And so maybe you give the job to Ken Norton Jr. as an interim coach for one year, and you say, get through this, and then you go shopping in December. And if Jonathan Smith is then ready to come, I mean, you got only a $6 million buyout instead of seven. Or maybe Ken Norton Jr. surprises you. And, and wins seven games, and all of a sudden you feel like, you know, hey, uh, we can work with this. So, you know, I think that the interim tag, you know, much in the same way that Jake Dickert ended up with the job at Washington State after Nick Rolovich flamed out, I, I think you could probably see a situation like that unfolding. Doesn't it seem like a lot like the uh, Carl Durrell situation at Colorado where uh, Mel Tucker leaves and they just needed a coach, and Durrell was named on February 23rd. Like that, it just seemed, and he was just a yeah. lame duck coach, and you knew it wasn't going to work. That's what it kind of seems like right now. Like I, th- I think the interim way is the smarter way. Just kind of almost punt on this next season and gather up for 2025 and figure out who your who your target's going to be then and then really go for it. Because I just, or, it's just going to be such a tough spot, man, John. Or you go, you do something nutty and you, you know, you, you go after a coach that maybe is available out there that, you know, is a, you know, and you give them an interim one year, like, you know, somebody like Pete Carroll. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not saying that I know anything, but I, the guy I immediately thought of was Ken Norton Jr. Eric Bieniemy came to mind. Um, and, and then I started thinking, could you go interim or would you just get trashed in the portal if you tried to go interim? I don't know. That is a question. But if you went internally, I mean, Norton's been there. Can't, players know him. Maybe you hang on to some of the defensive players because he's around. But really not an ideal situation if you're UCLA. In the meantime, Dan Lanning, Jed Fish, and some others uh, eyeing the UCLA roster, thinking about who the, what their wish list would be. Uh, you know, as these players start to hop into the portal. All right, you know what we'll do? We're going to talk to an athletic director next. Scott Lakeham, he's the AD at the University of Portland. I'm going to ask him, uh, in today's world, do you have to have a short list going at all times as an AD? Plus, uh, we'll find out what's going on in the WCC. They'll they have a partnership next season in basketball with the Pac-12 teams. Uh, we'll see how that's unfolding. Plus, the State of the Union with the University of Portland. We'll get all that from Scott Lakeham coming up. I want to talk about college athletics in general, the landscape of uh, college football is uh, shifted. So has the entire ecosystem. Here to talk about it, University of Portland Athletic Director Scott Lakeham. Uh, Give me your reaction. When a guy like Chip Kelly leaves UCLA for a coordinator job at Ohio State, it's not the world we grew up in. 
No, John, I, I live in a world where next year there won't be a Pac-12 and Washington State and Oregon State will be in the WCC. So I, I have no clue what's going on either. <laughs> Give me an idea from an AD standpoint, you know, the with the portal being part of the equation, how fast do you have to move when you have a coaching vacancy? And for you, it would be men's basketball. That job opens. How quickly do you feel like you have to move these days? I think you. I think if you make a move or you think you may have an opening, you need to know who your two or three are and move within a week or two. I think. I think there's times in my career I've gotten it right, and there's times I've maybe waited too long and and, and missed the the candidate I was I was hoping for. But you. You can't wait. I mean, and the fascinating thing about Chip Kelly now is the way that the Power Four schools are now cannibalizing each other in a way that that we haven't seen before, right? The Ohio State just hired away the Texas A&M athletic directors. Just, it's fascinating to see it happen above us, where it used to be more those schools cherry picking the mid majors. Yeah, they're they're get they're poaching each other, which is and there's a hierarchy definitely that is shaping up even within the Power Four. Scott Lakeham with us. University of Portland. How's this season going for you guys? Uh, men's and women's basketball. Let's start there. Um, love the coaches that you have. How are you feeling about the season? Um, men, I, I felt really good. We had a couple good wins last week. I think we're starting to get some guys healthy again. Uh, I love the energy Shantae's bringing, and I think he's gotten to where we wanted when we, we hired him. And I think where he was a bit of a unicorn, John, was – his last roster at Eastern Washington, he didn't have one transfer. He was about a guy that would develop young players and, and make them in all-conference or, or key guys by the end of their career, and that's that's what he's doing. We're, we're redshirting some guys that could probably help us now with the long game in mind. Um, now the cynicist would say, how do you keep guys in this market? And that's that's what we're working on, but I – you know, it's a different game now with the portal and NIL, and I think, um, especially on the men's side, when you think about recruiting with coaches, it's more about recruiting your own roster back every year <laughs> than, than than recruiting the outside world, uh, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, you and I could talk about this all day, um, but I. I mean, Shantae, the energy, the, the young guys we've developed. Uh, we've had a couple of guys be WCC Freshman of the Week already this year and feel feel good about where we're headed there. I think women, we're lucky that um, we have one of the best coaches, I think, on the West Coast. Uh, we're uh, Mike won again last night. We're 9-2 and two in the WCC, uh, probably have the best freshman in the league, and um, you know, have a chance to win the league and, and dance in March again, which is which is all you can ask for. The you know when I look at your conference, I don't immediately think NIL. But give us an idea in the WCC. You know, do you have is 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 NIL as big a deal, or is it just the portal and trying to retain your guys? What role does that play in the WCC? I think they're they're playing a more significant role. I think we saw NIL play. Uh, a bit of a role last cycle. I think it'll it'll play much more of a role this cycle. And the, I mean, the portal. It's I mean, it's open season, both coming in and coming out. And I think we were in a world before where you you know you hoped maybe we'll only have two or three open scholarships in a year. Now you expect 
to have a handful with with just the general movement. And I, you look at the mid major world, right? If a if a kid's not playing, well, you know, maybe they're going to hit the portal because they want to play somewhere else. Or, you know, if a kid scores twenty a game and gets attention from a power four and and maybe gets lured away. I mean, you could have openings at all sides, so you've got to be ready. Scott it's all, it's with, the coaching yeah. search question you asked, John. Right. I mean, it comes all the, back the to it. The coaches have to think the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Comes right back to it. I, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking it, you know, there's not anything I could do to stop any of this. I'd love for it to go back. I do think, though, that players should get, um, you know, should share in the success. I, I, I'm okay with name, image, likeness, like a lot of people, but, I, you know, I, I'm just worried that we're getting, you know, flying too close to the sun, so to speak, that this is going to look too much like professional sports. And I wonder if conferences like the WCC will be the place where we all go to kind of get a taste of what, what it used to be. I don't know. Is that too Pollyanna? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm right there Pollyanning with you, John, if that's a word. Um, you know, it's different. I, the NCAA is such a, a vast world, as you know, right? And I have a son who's a Division three football athlete at Linfield, and then you think of D2, and then D1 is about eight different subdivisions now. And the reality, and you mentioned this earlier, you have two conferences in the SEC and the Big Ten that are fully driving the train right now. Um, and, and I do think it will self-correct for everybody. I, I believe in the model that a – at a place like ours or PSU or Pepperdine or wherever, but uh, we're not in the football game, so the business looks different for us. Yeah, give me an idea that with the Pac-2 joining you guys next season to play, how was that received by the ADs as you guys kind of mold that over leading to that uh, agreement that you made with with Oregon State and Washington State? The ADs loved that move, John. I think if you look at us as a league, I mean, how many schools are going to be in the Big Ten next year? 17, 18? Um, we were sitting at nine. So we would have been the smallest league this side of the Ivy League, which is just a different animal of itself. So we have been looking and working to add permanent members for a while, and I, I imagine we will get there. But being nine was not sustainable. Um, if we lost a school, it was hard to schedule non-conference games because we had to schedule so many. Um, to have those two fall in our lap, if you will, was was fantastic. I thought Stu Jackson did a good job taking action and, and grabbing them right away. Um, and I'm thrilled they ended up, when I heard basketball, uh, it was great. And I, I credit Shante and Coach Meek here, like, bring them on. That's a great challenge. Let's play them. But um, for us, I'll put it this way, John, this will be the first time that we'll be able to bust to a conference opponent in four decades, right? Um, to have Oregon State nearby and now have a Gonzaga-Washington State trip is great. It gives us some regionality because for us in Gonzaga, I mean, we're going to California for you know 75% of our league games every year. So it's nice to have a couple schools up here. What do you see happening at Gonzaga? Because I think there's some concern in that fan base that, you know, They've lost some of their edge, um, that they won't be what they used to be. Is this conference catching up to them? Well, I think the conference is pretty good, too, right? I mean, I, St. Mary's, is that's a really good basketball program um, this year. I, I think Gonzaga is still an elite program, and I think you can be an elite 
non-football school. They've they've proven that. I, I think they'll continue to prove it uh, in the NIL era, um, much like the Big East schools do. St. Mary's, um, you know, USF's had a good run the last couple of years. I think it is. I think it is very possible, um, and I think we'll see how it all plays out the next couple of years as the you know we talk about another subdivision and and what happens with the power four how do we protect march madness amid all of the changing that's going on because as i think about college athletics that tournament's not broken it's it's thrilling it's one of the best things best sporting events uh you know on the calendar regardless of professional or college it prints money that thing's working how do you protect the tournament while you know there there has to be a reckoning, I guess, in the other areas of college athletics. Well, my hope is what's happened to date is the TV partners continue to say that that the model that you just mentioned is the one we like, right? It's that it's the opening weekend upsets and the Cinderellas and the teams in the Sweet 16. It was, you know, Gonzaga's run to the Elite Eight um, years ago. That's what CBS and Turner and the the partners have been interested in over the years so so my hope is that the tv partners continue to say cinderella is an important part of the dance uh we want to keep it there and i i would extend i think obviously basketball is the revenue arm of the nca uh in you know 90 plus percent is march madness um but for all sports john you know for our our men's soccer team to get to knock off ucla in the tournament and our you know, women's basketball team to get to play Oklahoma last year. I think for all of the sports, the chance to go up against, you know, the, the blue blood power four in the NCAA tournament is something that the, the kids practice for every day. The job of an AD, how has it changed for you in the last three or four years versus maybe even earlier in your career when you work in other places and other capacities? How different is the AD job? That's a great question. How much time you got? <laughs> um, I, I think it's part fortune teller. I, I think before we used to to live in the moment more, right? And what time's the game tonight? And and you know, managing today, tomorrow, next week. I'm spending a lot of time answering the and thinking about the questions you're answering. What does two years from now look like? What does the WCC four years from now look like? What does basketball only schools look like? How do we adjust to NIL? How do we protect ourselves in the portal? How do we beef up our mental health offerings for student-athletes? I'm more thinking probably 6, 12, 18 months out more than I was a couple of years ago. I'm I trying to yeah. guess where it's going. And, yeah. and I'll be honest, I didn't guess the Cougars and the Beavers <laughs> would be in the WCC or a lot of that. But I, I think – you know, trying to get out in front of things the best we can to find our our lane in this in this wacky race right now. Yeah, and how do you, you know, is it more about you're happy where you are, you need to protect it, or is it more about trying to see around the corner and know where you need to be in two years if, if there's another a round of realignment in chaos? I think if you're happy where you are, you're going to fall behind. And I think... We've seen that with some of the conference realignment over the last couple of years, haven't we? Um, I think it's just seeing what's next. And for me, you know, at the basketball level, John, I don't think 
a national league is is out of the question with a lot of the mid-majors. I mean, my opinion, and, and take it for what it's worth, is we're going to be at football-only conferences um, at some point in the near future. I know you know that. John Wilner knows that. We're all kind of headed that way. I think basketball is a little bit of a question as we get to the new March Madness TV contract and what that looks like. I feel really strongly that for Olympic sport leagues, maybe there's not a WCC or a Mountain West. We're playing the schools in Oregon, Washington, California, Idaho, and there's some regionality because mm-hmm. not every athlete wants to travel five hours to play a two-hour volleyball match. I heard right? that. I think for, yeah. for, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for some of our athletes, they want to play the schools in their region. They want to play their rivals. They want to play the kids they played against in high school and club and AAU. I, I think that's where it's headed. The question is how quickly. Yeah, I, I talked to a recruit who's, whose uh, daughter, or a parent whose daughter was a recruit who is, is going to Oregon State on a soccer scholarship. And they were asking me, you know, as things were uncertain, who are they going to play? And they really were interested in seeing their kid play. You know, they didn't care that, you know, is there my kid going to go play Ohio State or is my kid going to go play Texas? They, you know, they weren't interested in that. They just wanted to know that they're based in California and they wanted to know, hey, uh, is it going to be like a WCC type schedule, a Mountain West schedule? If so, we just, you know, we were comfortable with that. Like, I thought it was a really interesting sort of perspective. And you're right, like that regionality matters. Now, when you ADs get in the room, though, and you start talking about football splitting away, give me an idea, you know, and you don't have to go down the rabbit hole here, but how hard is it to be Title IX compliant if football is splitting away and you're paying players or, you know, or, or what do you have to do to, to get around that? Well, that's the interesting thing about NIL, right? If, if NIL comes in-house, like uh, I think there's some people in our industry would like to see that, then I think NIL changes, not a little bit, but a lot. Right, um, but I, I mean, we need to look at it differently. I mean, we're looking at it differently because we have Arizona State and Central Florida in the same league now, right? We have Oregon and Rutgers in the same league. We have Stanford and Miami in the same league. We have to say this is probably not a five, ten-year solution. So what's coming next? And we all know that the you know football is the revenue drive here, right? And it's only going to grow when we go from four teams to twelve uh, with the CFP with money that's not shared with everybody else, right? That's just with those schools. So football is its own enterprise. Those schools will still have to balance gender equity and everything else. But um, my hope, the the one thing that would really bum me out, John, and you didn't ask this, but I want to say this, yeah, is if we said, hey. You know, we don't need 16 sports anymore. We're going to do four, right? And I think one of the cool things in college athletics, the thing that I love about my job is I was at women's basketball last night. I'm at women's tennis today, men's tennis tomorrow. I've got a basketball doubleheader. I'm going to go watch baseball practice in a few minutes. We've got such a cool cross-section of 305 student-athletes, right? And it would be a bummer if we said, oh, we're, you know, we're going to be four sports instead of 16, it's important to our country. It's important to the development of our youth. It's important to the Olympic movement. And my worry is at some point we just say, ah, you know, the Olympic sports will be compromised. Yeah, and I think you're, you're, you're right. to You're justified in that. I hear that when I talk to Power 4 athletic directors and they start to say, you know, we don't know how, how long we can afford to fund some of these other sports. And they start talking about, 
those Olympic sports getting dropped and you know, and they talk about it like, hey, those kids will just find clubs and they'll be able to play and train on their own. Eh, it's not the same as having this uh, wonderful system that is college athletics. Scott Lakeham is with us, University of Portland athletic director. All right, landscape. Let's let's shift a little more regional here. Um, you know, just kind of the state of things in sports. You know, you know, Major League Baseball. They're trying to bring a baseball team to Portland. You've got Portland State. You know, trying to carve out its place. Oregon and Oregon State are doing their thing. Where does UP fit into the ecosystem in your mind in the state of Oregon? It's a good question. I think um, I think for us, you know, it has soccer and I think cross country and track is what we've been known for. Um, it's been a priori- priority of mine to, to build soccer back and build basketball up. Um, and then, you know, we, we've had a nice run in baseball and some other sports. But I, I think we're in a unique position, both ourselves and our, our friends at PSU. We are in a, what, a top 25 DMA that does not have a power four team in the city. There's no UCLA here. There's no UW in town. So there is a chance for us um, to get some attention, um, to make an impact, have lots of groups and, and students cross through our campus. And I, I think one of my things here in, in my 12 years, in addition to being really successful and trying to be the best we can be, uh, in our league, I mean, in the sports we competed in last year, we were second best in our league, apples to apples. And that's that's what I want to be. I want to be a really good broad-based program um, with, with focus on a couple of sports, obviously, but we want to win in everything. But the community aspect is important to us, too, John. We are a, a not-for-profit private school that's tuition-dependent. So how do we get more people on our campus? Um, one of the first things I did when I, I got hired here is we brought the OSAA 6A basketball championship back to Childs. Um, how great is it to have 18,000 people on our campus over the course of a weekend, right? Um, to have the Rift City remix here. We've already seen some rub with, with our crowds and getting some families here that maybe hadn't been on campus um, before we did that. How are we the best D1 athletic program we can be but also play a role in this cool sports ecosystem. Because the one thing that's, that's amazed me, and, and, and it's like this here and it wasn't like it in the Bay Area, everybody works together really well here. I mean, I, I, I love our partnership with the Blazers, and I love the partnership with the, the Timbers, and KL out at the Hops is, is one of the best at what he does. We all work together in a really cool way in this market that doesn't happen a lot of places. I love that that you know, that synergy. You're all kind of in it together, facing some of the same challenges as well. Um, all right, looks like you got basketball on a Saturday tomorrow, uh, St. Mary's. You've got uh, obviously the variety of things you talked about. Gonzaga coming to town on uh, February 22nd, and uh, Scott Lakeham. Who do you like in the Super Bowl? Before I cut you loose, go Chiefs. I'm a, oh, I'm a tortured no. Falcons fan. No. I'm a tortured Falcons you just fan. Said, so. You were doing fine until that. <laughs> go Niners. How's that? Okay, there go you Niners. go. Falcons, right. huh? Wow. All right. Falcons. I, I, I've had trouble watching a Super Bowl since that Patriots game. <laughs> well, if Kyle Shanahan wins, it'll kind of be a little bit of retribution, right? He was calling the plays. Yeah, further, further torture. Further torture. <laughs> Scott Lakeham, thank you. I'll catch up with you. Thank you, man. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. All right, there he goes, University of Portland Athletic Director.
Men's basketball home on Saturday, 5.30. That's tomorrow against St. Mary's. Super Bowl Sunday looming. We got to talk about it. We'll talk about it next. Still can't believe somebody pulled the fire alarm yesterday on the 49ers. Do you think uh, that was a Chiefs fan, Stephen, or is that somebody just trying to disrupt the Niners? Yeah, Chiefs fan. Chiefs fan for sure. Somehow they found that out. It's honestly surprising it doesn't happen more often. I know, but it's kind of, you know, like pulling the alarm. Don't they, did they get video of the person? They catch him? They know who did it? I mean, I don't know. But but isn't that, I mean, wouldn't that be a great home field advantage? Just knowing that your fans are going to go out and mess with other teams? I guess I don't know why don't why don't more teams do that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that's what that's what I'm asking. Why, why are teams not doing? Connor this? Stallions now working the fire alarm circuit. Yeah, you got to have people um, alarmed or uh, you know just watch over the hotel rooms of the opposing teams. I want to talk some Super Bowl here. Lewis Riddick talking about Brock Purdy, why he doesn't get cred. Punch it. We we want our quarterbacks now to be. The guys who do Patrick stuff. We become drunk with that, intoxicated with the guys who can throw it with their left hand, throw a no-look pass, throw it behind their back, throw it between their legs, throw it, you know, 70 miles. But we go, but what about the guy who led the league in total QBR, led the league in total QBR against the Blitz, led the league in total QBR um, against pressure, uh, yards per attempt, efficiency ratings, completion percentage, above expectation. oh, forget that. I just want to look at how he looks and how he plays. And that's why we won't ever give it to him the way he deserves. And then, of course, being Mr. Irrelevant, people think, well, he was Mr. Irrelevant for a reason. So you don't think ever like, general managers ever make a mistake? Mm. Of course they do. It's, I don't see it as a mistake. And I disagree with Riddick and his characterization. Brock Purdy in the NFC Championship game, one of the most creative plays that he made was, you know, on a critical third down, he starts to run with the football. He realizes he's not going to make it. Defender's just about in his rib cage, and he does a little jump pass, and he kind of does a little hook shot pass and dumps it off five yards forward downfield, and it's a first down. It was very Patrick Mahomes-like. So I think Purdy makes those plays, and to the point of, like, a mistake – being the last player drafted in the NFL, and it's being viewed as, oh, it's a mistake. I don't see it that way. I think there are a lot of quarterbacks who end up in a favorable position because they're not picked in the first or second round. And I'll go to, uh, you know, case in point, and I don't think this is a new thing. I think Brock Purdy's in a great situation because he got drafted by a team that had a stable of quarterbacks that didn't need to have him play right away. They said, gosh, this guy's got 50 starts as a college quarterback. He was a winner at every level. I think Oregon fans saw him close up in a bowl game, uh, you know, that last year of his career. And, and it was just like, wow, this, you know, he's got a little bit of game and he's got some experience and let's get him in there and see what he can do. And I think, you know, you can look around college football, you find guys like Brock Purdy. I think Bo Nix is that kind of guy. And I think Bo Nix will be drafted higher because he's got a little bit of the marketing, branding, exposure that Oregon brought to him versus, you know, Iowa State. and But I think it's a very similar type player. And I think, you know, I, I, here's another thing. I'll go back to something that, you know, I had the fortune of covering the NFL in 2000, 2001. So I was around the Niners and the Raiders in particular. 
And I had, you know, at the time, people did not, not remember this, but Bill Walsh had been relegated to kind of this advisor role with the 49ers. And he had an office. He had his own administrative assistant. But Steve Mariucci was the coach. And I got the impression that Mariucci and Terry Donahue didn't really value what Bill Walsh had to say. And so Bill Walsh had this office. He'd sit back there. He'd give him some draft input, free agency input. And he was mostly sharpening pencils. And I went to see Bill Walsh one day. And I said, you know, we started talking about the draft. And and I, I felt so lucky to be sitting in this room with Bill Walsh having like an hour conversation about quarterbacks being picked in the draft. And we were talking in particular right around 2000, 2001, and we were talking about guys like Joey Harrington drafted way too high. We were talking about other quarterbacks who were thrown to the fire. And, you know, and Walsh was saying, look at the two guys that are leading the NFL in passing. And at the time, it was Jeff Garcia, undrafted, leading the NFC. And it was Rich Gannon, who was a fourth-round pick out of Delaware, who was leading the AFC. They were the leading passers in both conferences. And Walsh started kind of picking apart, like, why those two guys ended up in the situation they are in. And it was all about getting in the right situation, having the right amount of time, developing and not being thrown into something where you're in over your head. Gannon had been holding a clipboard for years in Minnesota and Kansas City. Suddenly he's with the Raiders, and now he's a... He's the MVP of the NFL, 2002. And Garcia, he he didn't get drafted. He had to go to the CFL. Goes to the CFL, finds his way into the NFL. Guess what? He's behind Steve Young when Steve Young gets concussed and gets thrown in and plays pretty well in a good situation with a good team. It was the fortune of their circumstance. And I think Brock Purdy has been fortunate. And I think, to some extent, Patrick Mahomes has been fortunate to have had that injury when he first got into the NFL, he didn't have to play right away. And he had a really good team that he just sort of joined, and they they took off like an airplane. Leave it here. I had somebody yesterday, a friend of mine, asked me uh, what he should do when it comes to wagering on the Super Bowl. And I want to say, I want you to put your money back in your pocket and enjoy the game. Niners are... Still a two-point favorite. Over-unders, 47.5. I mean, there's some fun prop bets. Steven, are you going you gonna to place any prop bets? Yeah, of course so. I, I got I to gotta do a little more research on you know national anthem stuff, Gatorade stuff. Um, I need to do some research on Brock Purdy for the MVP on who they thank first. That's always a big one I like to oh. do. Because sometimes these guys are religious, so you know it's who are they? He's gonna, religious, so who are they going to thank first? It's usually God in that situation, yeah. not, a, not a teammate or a, you know coach. So there's some. Re- I got I got to dig in a little bit more. Most rushing yards in the game: Christian McCaffrey, Isaiah Pacheco, Patrick Mahomes, fourteen to one. Debo Samuel, forty to one. I don't know. Some, I, if you're betting on the color of the Gatorade, I'm worried about you. Whoops. Bet, bet on the coin toss. Why? Just bet me on the coin toss. Why? All right, like, let's do it. What do you want? Heads or tails? <laughs> it's tails. All right. I'll take our it. Ne- our next guest is going to give us the skinny. Mark Shipper, fifth down CFE on Twitter, college football on Twitter, CFB on Twitter. I'm sorry, B, not E. 
You have uh, heard him on ESPN, Sirius XM. He's been on this show uh, multiple times. He's fired up about this Chip Kelly thing. The decision to not fire Chip Kelly a year ago may be coming back to haunt UCLA. Mark Shipper joining us to talk about it from Chicago. Hey, uh, so what's your day been like? Yeah, you know, John, it's funny. I was thinking about it. I actually woke up this morning planning to get a lot of work done, sat down at the old writing desk, and uh, this hit the proverbial fan. So it's been a wild day. Give me an idea, like, you know, Chip Kelly to Ohio State. Let's unpack this a little bit. You've been doing some reporting on kind of what happened behind the scenes, his relationship with his athletic director, the university president, Gene Block. Uh, Give us the soap opera, uh, the cliff notes on the soap opera. Yeah, well, the move was really made last fall to get rid of Chip after UCLA's disastrous October. They lost to uh, Arizona and then were beat by one of the worst football teams in Arizona State history at home in the Rose Bowl. Uh, Chip either fell below uh, 500 for his tenure or fell back to 500. Uh, There were rumors of a fight in the locker room at the Arizona game, and so a move was made to fired chip but in the process of that happening uh ucla's one of ucla's major boosters a guy named casey wasserman this is public record this was a a newspaper piece he came out basically on his own and said any talk of firing chip kelly at this point is ridiculous his word was ridiculous so that basically put the brakes on the fundraising for chips buyout the chancellor stepped in with the athletic director and the whole process came to a halt And the big thing at that time is UCLA had some major coaching candidates who had either expressed interest or or basically locks for the job and Jonathan Smith at Oregon State and Jed Fish at Arizona. And, of course, those guys have now taken other jobs. UCLA is uh, out of the running for them, and they're they're in a tough spot with the timing on Chip leaving for Columbus. Yeah, what does UCLA do right now? You have the uh, pulse of that fan base. What, what, What do the Bruins do? Well, it's a really interesting question. You know, had this happened closer to the season, you could go with an interim coach and just say, we're going to take lumps year one, but we're going to take our time and hire the right coach going forward. But this has happened, you know, six weeks before spring football. So I think putting an interim coaching staff in place to run spring ball and then just kind of get demolished year one in the Big Ten is a pretty tough ask. It It would really hurt recruiting. It would probably hurt NIL unless the boosters got extremely motivated to uh, dig them out of the hole. So I think the move is going to be a hire a coach. Now the deal with that is uh, athletic director, Martin Jarman may or may not be long for UCLA. There, there have been different uh, messaging on that, but chancellor Gene block is gone. He retired July 31st. He's out. UCLA's hiring a new chancellor. So you've just got a lot of turnover at the top of these departments at the university, and they're going to try to hire a football coach. So Martin Jarmond has to uh, channel everything he has and make a great hire here, or it's or it's going to be um, it's going to be an even messier situation for UCLA. What does it say about the industry right now that a coach like Chip Kelly would view going from being the head coach at UCLA to being the offensive coordinator at Ohio State as a good move? Yeah, well, I think for a guy like Chip, I actually, uh, there's a lot of this going on in college football, and I think those are better discussions to have about guys leaving for the NFL. With Chip's kind of a unique case, 
you guys had Chip up in Oregon. You know, Chip got himself in trouble with some recruiting stuff in Oregon. At UCLA, he's he's made the bold and dynamic move of just not recruiting at all. He, he's been the worst recruiter in UCLA history. His class, his class this year is 86 in the country, 18th out of 18th in the Big Ten. And it's just not something he wants to do, period. So you add NIL to that fundraising with boosters, not just for the program, but for NIL. And Chip is totally disinterested in being a, a head college football coach. He really wanted to go to the NFL. That that was clear. That was the destination he would have preferred. But the NFL turned him down at at least three different spots. I just saw a credible report that the Cincinnati Bengals interviewed him last year to be the head coach hmm. there and turned him down. So I think at Ohio State what he's got is a recruiting juggernaut, and he's not going to have to do anything. He'll step onto that field and say, look at all these beautiful players I get to uh, – put into my offense so it's it's a much less stressful situation for chip yeah the way i read it off the top of the show as i explained it to my listeners mark was you know chip kelly knew in a year he was going to be what five and seven in the big ten uh get his teeth kicked in and you know at that point with a new chancellor and you know maybe a new athletic director maybe he loses booster support maybe he's out of a job in a year right it goes to ohio state as a coordinator, they go to the playoff. Maybe they win a championship. Chip Kelly is a uh, hireable co- commodity at that point. Is it as simple as that for Chip Kelly, the thinking, the logic of it? Yeah, I don't know if it's purely as simple as that, but that would be a major through line in his thinking, I, I believe, absolutely. From the moment last year when UCLA moved to fire him and that got out with the booster making the public statements and Chip realized people are moving behind my back to fire me, um, by the way, seven months after extending him, that's that's part of what made this so ugly for Chip there, is, is the AD extended him March of last year, seven months later in October, he's moving to fire him. So, yeah, Chip absolutely knew that it, it was over for him essentially at UCLA, kind of a, a dead man walking or lame duck situation. And, yeah, if he failed in the Big Ten and got fired, you know, halfway in, or even if they let him have the whole season, all of a sudden his stock, has bottomed out again, whereas at Ohio State, exactly what you said could happen. They could have a uh, another Ohio State-esque season, and all of a sudden Chip's one of the hottest coordinators in the country again and maybe back in the NFL. Mark Schiffer with us with uh, college football, fifth down college football. Good follow on Twitter. Um, I, I immediately started thinking about coaches like Lincoln Riley, you know, Kyle Whittingham. Maybe he's an outlier because Utah's got such great culture, but – we're watching Nick Saban and others that you have mentioned. The coach at Boston College goes to, you know, says he wants to get back to coaching. He's going to the NFL. It's, you know, who, who's next, Mark? As you look around, are there other flight risks like Chip Kelly in college football? Yeah, you know, I don't have a list of specific names, but generally speaking, Lincoln Riley is an interesting one. Generally speaking, I just think it's a possibility because it's it's going to come down to booster culture and money raising culture, and really what happens in the next year or two with the NCAA and how they're going to handle uh, athletes as employees or cutting them in on revenue or how they're going to deal with the pay-for-play situation, whatever form it is. With NIL, what you have put on coaches' plate is all their regular duties plus an additional essential task of constantly hitting up your boosters and your fan base for money to essentially build a payroll 
for your roster. So you're asking your fans and boosters to do everything they normally do, season tickets, all the time they put into the program, everything they pay for already. Now they're paying for your payroll to keep your team together as well. So I can see coaches, if, if they are having to struggle too much to do that year by year and all year, and they don't get to focus on football, yeah, why wouldn't you be looking for one of those coveted NFL jobs where, you're, where your only real mission is to be on the field coaching football and on the sideline coaching football? The contract stuff is taken care of by other people. Mark, uh, I immediately thought about Jonathan Smith. He was at Oregon State. He, he jumped for the first port in the storm, so to speak, goes to Michigan State. <laughs> I think he would have been top of the list for UCLA, top of the list for Washington. How does Jonathan Smith in Michigan State fit into the Big Ten. You're you're in the footprint there. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I, I would totally agree with you. Jonathan Smith, of course, from Pasadena, one or both parents, UCLA alumni. Um he was he he's expressed interest in the job. Um I, Jonathan Smith would have would have definitely been at the top of UCLA's list. Um Kalen DeBoer would have been the year before that when he beat UCLA at Fresno State, beat Chip in the Rose Bowl at Fresno State, UCLA didn't fire Chip that year either, and DeBoer went to Washington, of course. So, you know, Michigan State, Jonathan Smith, I, you know, it, we're going to find out what that's like. It's it's new territory for Jonathan Smith. Um, he's going to be recruiting in an area with a lot of big powers, scouring it. And when you get below the big powers, you've got schools like Iowa, who are about the best in the country at identifying that next tier down of player to develop in their own program. And Michigan State and Iowa are kind of similar in that fashion in that they have to get the best of what the Michigans, the Ohio State, Penn State, et cetera, leave behind and develop those players. So Jonathan Smith is going to have to hire great coaches. They're going to have to do a great job recruiting, and then they're going to have to develop guys. So I think Jonathan Smith is much more comfortable on the West Coast getting kids and then going into the Midwest to play than he is being rooted in the Midwest. But We'll find out. He's a good coach, and he's a smart guy, and um, we'll find out if he's if he's capable of doing it. Will college football split away from the other sports? Is that where we're headed? I think, yeah, I, I think so. I think major college football will, and there'll probably be a delineation and even major college football between, like, the – you know, the the so-called P5 tier programs and the G5 programs. Uh, there There may even be a split there with some – switch over but you know chip kelly the guy we're talking about here actually he, he speaks pretty eloquently on the fact that football is a different beast and, and, and that's been known for a long time the, the amount of revenue the amount of attention everything about college football sets it apart from every other college sport even men's college basketball as big as that is is a a distant second to college football so I think in, in kind of the name of, of sanity and clarity, it probably will split, but that brings up a whole uh, a, a whole hornet's nest of other issues, as you know, uh, particularly when you talk about employment and universities and state laws and everything else. So I think if they do split, they're probably looking at, at a situation where they need to third-party the programs in, in some kind of certain way, affiliate with the universities as opposed to players being employees directly of the university, maybe making them employees of a conference entity or, or something like that. Otherwise, they got Title IX issues. They got, you know, all the issues that public universities deal with in terms of unions and, and everything else. So it's um, it's not a simple situation, I will say that. All right. It's really messy right now for UCLA. Um, and, you know, Chip Kelly being out of the way, there's going to be a faction of UCLA fans who celebrate this. 
right? I mean, it's not going to be yeah. all gloom and doom. They're going to be like, great, this is awesome. We get to go find a new coach. But um, give me an idea, Mark, like, you know, the temperature of the fan base for athletic director Mark, Martin Jarmond is, is the view that he has mishandled this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely the view that he's he's mishandled this, and there there are rumblings about things he's mishandled with the basketball program, and Mick Cronin as well, and there are, you know, well sourced rumors of of a break between Block and Jermon, and and Gene Block losing confidence in Jermon, which is why he may be replaced when the new chancellor comes in. So I I think you know UCLA fans are overwhelmingly glad Chip is gone. I think they're. Uh, trepidatious upset about the timing a little bit it's really weird timing for a head coach to leave and it's going to cause ucla problems but the the chance of replacement this summer july 31st and and what goes on there is just going to be we're not going to really know until then so right now martin jarman just got to make the best hire he can and and hopefully put together a sane contract depending on who he gets and then ucla is going to have to go from there but it's it's going to be it's uh, the Don's. It's always darkest before Don. I think UCLA's headed into the darkness for a little bit here before the sun's going to come back up. Yeah, I was told that Chip Kelly and Martin Jarmond were not speaking last year. Yeah, I don't know if they mended it during the season, but last spring, uh, excuse me, last summer, I was told they were not speaking, and I kind of wondered how this would all play out. Uh, and uh, certainly, I, it looks like Chip Kelly kind of packed the van flipped uh, his middle finger out the window and drove off. And so uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, Mark Shipper, fifth down college football. Thank you, man. Thanks for joining us. John, appreciate you as always. Take care of yourself, all right? All right, you too. There he goes. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, if there's another wave of chaos coming in major college football, you know, think about UCLA. They've got a really weird dynamic between their football stadium and their campus spread out. Um, You got a faction of the student body that doesn't care about football. Um, I don't know how else to put this, but it's a uh, school for smart kids and with a very low admission rate. And, you know, those are not football fans who are lining up to boost enrollment. Uh, you got bad athletic department financing. You now have the Big Ten and the SEC eating away at the recruiting in the Pacific time zone. And you've got Oregon, Washington, and USC kind of as the big tent poles in the western part of the United States. I mean, you could make an argument that if there's another wave of realignment, you know, the only thing UCLA has going for it is its geography. If if it's not in Los Angeles, I don't think it's I don't think people are viewing UCLA as part of big time college football, but it's got the geography, and that's why it's headed to the Big Ten. Does how many it, games? How many games they win next year? Uh without looking at the schedule, four. Yeah, four and eight, three and set, three or four, three does or four. You, does I, USC need UCLA to tag along with them? They didn't, but. I, you know, when they made that deal, when Fox made that deal and the Big Ten made that deal, USC kind of said, we won't go without UCLA. They wanted their partner in it. But, um, so basically, you know, if, like, if it proves to work out, like the whole, you know, the, the power four and they're going to break off 
and it proves they don't need UCLA, they'd be an easy candidate to just say, hey, we don't, we don't need you. We don't need you. Already got the L.A. market with USC. Sorry, right. you're out. Um, keep an eye on it. Yeah, that's why they have to make a good football hire. All right, Punch and Audio coming up. Anna will be in the studio. So much ahead. We really need to lock down on the Super Bowl. It, what is it about? What are you bringing to your party that I need to be cooking? I mean, remind me what I need. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, all that's still ahead. You got the BFT. What are what are your must-haves for the Super Bowl? If you're watching the game on TV, Stephen, what are your must-haves? What do you need to have in the room if you're watching the Super Bowl? I need to have uh, some type of snack, and most you know, I, I I like chips. I like to have just you know some chips, potato chips, Doritos, something like that. Um, I need to have some sodas. I need to have something to drink. Do you like your sodas standard or exotic? Uh, standard. Do you know what I mean by that? No, I don't. But I'm gonna go <laughs> then why did you answer? You just answered yeah, standard. I just, yeah, just because I wanted to act like I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, when I go into the normal soda section at the grocery store, there's like the normal Pepsi, Sprite, root beer, orange, whatever, diet this, whatever. Okay? It's just like just stacks of this all the way down the aisle. Then there's the other aisle that has like cream soda, orange soda, you know, your snapples. I call those your exotics. Mm. No, I'm yeah, just give me the standard. I'm fine with that. I'm standard <laughs> fine. I'm standard it, fella. It is in the studio. What's going on? What do you need? This is very top of mind. Yeah, what I do you just need? went shopping. So yeah. Uh you know, I bought some exotics. Oh you did? Yeah, I did. I like it. Yeah. What'd you mm-hmm. get in the exotic category? Mm, those sparkling ice waters. Yeah. The children think those are really exotic. They do. They're going to grow up thinking that's making it, mm-hmm. getting one of those sparkling drinks. I, I, know, I, used to... I know I do. I, I get those. <laughs> I get those. Yeah. I think I feel like I made it when I'm drinking those. Do you think they should make Capri Sun like drinks for adults that are bigger like than the little can? pouch? No, but just bigger than the little pouch. You know, like everything else in our society comes jumbo sized, king sized. That I can do that. Capri Sun and like two slurps. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but you don't want, you don't want in a pinch. The, you don't want in the pouch, do you? Like I can, I don't want to be drinking it <laughs> out of the pouch. I don't mind. What if it was like a pouch that was the size of a, a milk carton? You know. I don't believe in the Capri Sun. Like I don't understand why, you know, the beverage manufacturer decided that we're going to take this beverage and we're going to stick it into the most impossible vehicle, like container to hand to a toddler because you know anybody knows if you've tried to stick the straw into Capri Sun it's not really the easiest thing to do and then you hand it to a toddler who inevitably squeezes it and then the juice shoots out the top so I just I don't understand the packaging model on that I, I don't know if I'm answering your question but all I could see is you and me on the amazing race and me going this person can't even put a straw into a Capri Sun you know, this is supposed to, I'm supposed to win this game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just jam it in there. MacGyver it. Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie has a big question for us. I, Charlie, I cannot wait for this. What's on your mind? Okay, I'm in the drive through lane at my bank right now. Talk me out of betting at minus 320 that the kickoff will be a touchback. So, in other words, if I bet $320 or $3,200 and I get back 1000 if it's a touchback, you know it's going to be a touchback. They're all touchbacks. They all go have, through the end zone now. Have you done the research this season and uh, the percentage of, ki- of touchbacks on this season? 
That would take a lot of fun out of it. No, no. I just so from a, watching the game, I'd say it's about eighty-five percent. But okay, that's just it, watching the game, it's seventy-nine point nine percent. Ooh, that's of, pretty good, ain't it? Yeah. So you have a seventy-nine point nine percent chance to make how much on your wager? Is it minus three twenty? Yeah, which means I have to spend three hundred twenty dollars to get back four hundred twenty dollars. So you're making a hundred bucks on a three hundred dollar bet. And you have a seventy nine percent chance of getting. Now I'm looking at I'm looking at it here. Harrison Butker, uh, seventy four touchbacks on eighty five kickoffs this year. Okay, there you go. Gosh, I think okay. I'm making this this withdrawal. How about Moody? How about Moody? Um, Did you look up Moody? I'm digging in right now. Is it too much to look at the other kicker? No, you know uh, you went halfway see, here, with the research. Here, okay, so. here's your problem though. Moody, <laughs> fifty four touchbacks on ninety kickoffs. I don't see. I don't like it. So if the, like if the Niners it. are kicking off, I think uh, I think Charlie, you might be in a little bit of a sweat there. I didn't like so it. Better, yeah, if, I better wait till the cast off. Find out who wins the flip is what you're saying before I actually put the cast down. All right, fair enough. It, I appreciate it, that, Stephen. You're welcome. Here's the th- here's the thing too. I don't I don't like the the odds. I don't like that he's betting three hundred and forty dollars to win a hundred. On something that's you know now we're finding out is closer to like sixty five percent chance of probability. Yeah, but Butker's eighty Butker's eighty seven percent touchbacks. Moody's only sixty percent. So it's one of those things where you have to hope that the yeah. Chiefs are kicking off. Let's see what this tells me is that the sports book has actually done some research. That they knew this, <laughs> they knew everything that we looked up. I'm a little uncomfortable with the fact that like he's in the drive through line at the ATM. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, you know, calling I, the doctor here. I'll tell you, for I, respect a checkout. I, I, I saw a couple of opportunities <laughs> on the board. I'm just going to I'm just going to read these off. I am not telling you to wager these. I'm just saying I saw these as potential opportunities on the board. Fred Warner, 49er linebacker. There's a line on DraftKings for the over under on number of tackles for Warner. It's at four and a half. This is a guy who's getting seven or eight tackles a game. I felt pretty good about the over on Fred Warner tackles. There's also an alternate rushing yards for Christian McCaffrey, 50 yards. Can McCaffrey get 50 yards on Kansas City? And an alternate receiving total for Debo Samuel of 50 yards. Now, if you parlay Warner's over four and a half tackles, with over 50 yards for McCaffrey and over 50 yards for Debo Samuel, uh, your odds on that are plus 172. I think that's a better investment than the touchback. Mm. Am I just talking too much science there? No, I'm. Uh, I'm just. Lo- I'm locking it in. Yeah. Here's another I'm, one. I'm on I like. the app right now, trying to figure. Here's it out. another one I like. The over/under on Debo Samuel rushing yards, mm. 16 and a half. He's gonna carry. He's gonna carry the ball two or three times. I think I talked. I maybe talked to you. I know I talked to Jude about it. I might talk to you about it. But yeah, I love that Debo Samuel one. Um, the one that I was looking at, John, and we talked about this because the the referees. You know, you threw me some referee yeah. stats. Forty uh, yeah. ers under one and a half sacks in the game is plus one thirty. I really like that. Uh, mm. I know. I know the Chiefs have a problem sometimes with the offensive line, but they hold a lot. And Mahomes is such a magician back there. He's just gonna get rid of the ball. I, mean, I, I, could, I could see where the you know, the Niners just get one sack on the Chiefs in this game. And plus, I think I the Chiefs, Chiefs I think are going to run the football a lot. I think they're going to rely on Pacheco. So I like that. I've uh, already made that one. Here's a uh, So if you took the Debo Samuel rushing yards over 16.5 and, and you parlay it with the 49ers to score more than 20.5 points, 
you get plus 148 on your odds. Plus one and a half. See, it's not bad. I like that better than waiting for the kickoff. Yeah, here's the other thing to Charlie in Vancouver. Are you really going to put 300 bucks and hand it to a kicker? He sounds like he's like, put 3,000, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's going to hand it to a kicker and be like, hey, you know what? I trust you to get the ball in the end zone. A, I don't a rookie trust kicker? These guys. A rookie you know, kicker, Jake Moody? Yeah. I don't know. And if the Niners, you know, here's the thing if the Niners win the toss, they'll defer, they'll take the ball in the second half. And if they lose the toss, um, Kansas City, you think Kansas City will take the ball? I guess I need to look that up, like what, what the Chiefs do if they win the, win the toss. Because I think there's a pretty fair chance the Niners are kicking off in this game. Because if the Chiefs want the ball and they win the toss, the Niners will defer if they they defer if they don't win. You know, if they win the toss, they do it every time. They're like Oregon State. He, Jonathan Smith does that. <laughs> he wants the ball in the second half every. I think Jonathan Smith. I actually think Jonathan Smith copied a lot of what Kyle Shanahan does. Hmm. I see some distinct similarities in what Oregon State does offensively, what the Niners do offensively, kind of Smith defers, Kyle Shanahan defers. So the Niners want to kick off if they win the toss. But they should have taken the ball in that Detroit game. I digress. Let me ask you some bets and just see if you would make these bets because this is what these companies are putting out, and they make it so enticing. So they're saying like $100 on Debo to score a touchdown would win you $135. I think uh, easy money is what they're saying. That, I don't know if it's easy money, but you know if the if the Niners win the game, I think Debo Samuel's scoring a touchdown. So if you're a Niner fan and you're picking the Niners to win the game, you probably are saying that's a pretty nice little bet. What okay. else you got? One hundred dollars on Kittle and Kelsey to both have seventy plus receiving yards would mm. win you four hundred eighty five dollars. I think Kelsey will get there easily. He just has become a bigger part of the offense with no Tyree Kill. Um, Kittle sometimes disappears it's weird Mm -hmm. it just kind of it depends on what the defense does with Brandon Ayuk and uh and uh, Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey if they put too much emphasis on those guys Kittle suddenly emerges and you know he can he can rip off a 45 yard you know reception with no time but I I don't know if they both get there. Steven, you feel good about both of them getting 70 yards? No, I don't. I'm with you because I think the 49ers have too many options, right? Like you, like the Chiefs, for them to move the football, is going to be Rasheed Rice. It's going to be Travis Kelsey through the air. Like You, you can't trust uh, Vantas Scantling. You can't trust Kadarius Tony or Justin, any of those guys. You can't t- trust any of those guys. I think with the 49ers, though, so I think Kelsey gets the ball a lot. With the 49ers, like you can trust Debo. You can trust Ayu. You can trust McCaffrey. Purdy is thrown. He can run the football now. Like, there's a like you look at last week. Kittle didn't have a very good game with the Lions, so I think it could happen again. So no, I, I don't like that one. I think I do think Kelsey has another nice game, but uh, I wouldn't take the Kittle part. Okay, next, a hundred dollars on either team to kick a game-winning walk-off field goal hmm. would win you eight hundred dollars. That's not a bad bet. I wouldn't put a hundred on it though. If it's eight to one, you know, I'll put ten on that. Steven? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, – I'm with John. I'm not going 100 on that one. It would be a very small bet. It would be a fun bet because it does seem like it's going to be a close game. It's going to come down yeah, to the it'll wire. Yeah, cl- it's a close game. And, you know, both these teams have kickers that they would trust in that situation, and I could see it coming down to a game-winning field goal. But the problem would be is, like, what if there's, like, 10 seconds left and they kick the field goal, then you lose that bet still because there's five seconds left. Well, in that case, you just curse at your television for the next <laughs> 15 minutes because you were, you were a host. I had, uh, I had a uh, – Five-leg parlay in the NFC Championship game. 
And I needed, uh, I hit on four of the legs, and I needed four more yards from Detroit's running back. And then they had the ball at the end of the game. And because they were behind, they were passing every down. I was just like, hand it off. I need four yards. And uh, and in the meantime, I got to be happy that my 49ers were winning. Um, what else you got? You got any more? You're good. Hundred bucks on Christian McCaffrey with three or more touchdowns Ooh. would win you nine hundred dollars. Okay, he did that I think twice this season, at least once, maybe twice this season, where he's had three touchdowns. But they came against teams like Arizona. I just I don't know if the Kansas City Chiefs, who will show up saying our first priority is to stop Christian McCaffrey, are going to allow Christian McCaffrey to score three touchdowns. But that happens. That happened against Arizona earlier this season where he just went bananas. And if that happens, the Niners are winning this game going away. By the way, that brings me to another point. Just humor me here for a second. Okay. The 49ers and the Chiefs played each other in the Super Bowl three years ago. Is that right? Three years ago in the Super Bowl. Mm. Big game. You know, and I'm looking back at the rosters for that game because I had a friend who said, hey, which of these teams got better? And... And which of these teams, you know, is better since they last played in a Super Bowl? And I kept thinking to myself, you know, like, oh, Kansas City's really good. But you go back and you you rewatch the Super Bowl game for the last time that they played. Mm -hmm. The Chiefs don't have Tyreek Hill. The 49ers are better at quarterback. They have Christian McCaffrey. Remember, Debo was a rookie when they played in that Super Bowl the last time. I'm looking at the Niners and I'm going, gosh, they're seemingly on paper so much better than they were the last time these two teams played in the Super Bowl at the end of the 2019-2020 season. This four years ago. So you tell me, like, am I making too much of that, Stephen? Like, this is still a game. Patrick Mahomes is still in it. But I don't think the Chiefs are better than the, than the last time they played in the Super Bowl against the Niners. This is you sounding like a 49er fan because okay. the 49ers, the defense is not even close to what it was then. Like, the, that defense was unbelievable. I mean, think I about bring up the defense. I was talking about the You're offense. talking about the offense, exactly. <laughs> D'Amico Ryans, John, he's the head coach of the Texans, made the playoffs, you know, first year. He was their inside linebackers coach. Like, that's how good their coaching staff was. That's how good that team was. Like, I, I just think you're uh, underestimating the defensive side for the 49ers. Now, offensively, you're right. The Chiefs are not as good as they once were. And we I've been saying that all playoffs long. I'm surprised they got to this point, but... I think you're overrating it just a little bit there, Niner boy. I don't know. The Niners, Christian McCaffrey, pretty good player. He's, you know, he's a 49er. George Kittle's <laughs> older. George Kittle's older. Brock yeah. Purdy. I mean, what what has he really won? I mean, come on. All right. We'll well, all right. On that note, Christian McCaffrey winning the NFL Offensive Player of the Year. Here's his speech. And lastly, my teammates. Um, man, I, I can't even put into words how much I love you guys. This has been the most fun I've ever had playing football. Um I'm not up here without you. Football is the greatest game on the planet. It's the biggest team sport in the world, and we're so lucky to get to enjoy it. And uh, the fact that I get to go, to go to battle with you guys every week is, is one of my greatest honors because of the way you guys play football and inspire me every single day. I'm not up here without you. I love you guys. We got one more. Let's go finish it the right way. Appreciate it, guys. He said earlier in the speech he's having more fun than he's had on any other team ever Stanford fans are mad because they're going hey and I saw him like you know they understand grain of salt but you know it was 
It's interesting to hear an NFL player say that because most of the time, when I've talked to NFL players, they will say the most fun they ever had Mm -hmm. was high school or college and that the NFL is a business. Is Christian McCaffrey just saying the right thing to say when he's getting that award, Stephen? Um, no, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like he's pretty genuine about it. Because you're right. Like they, professionals don't necessarily say that that they have a ton of fun playing the professional league. So it is a little shocking that he would say that. I, I think he was pretty genuine. So for that, like, I respect that he actually he came out and said that, and that's to this type of speech. So no, man, I, he didn't say what he had to say. He just it sounded like he said what he felt. Here is uh, Ed McCaffrey, his dad, saying that you know the advice he gives his son when it comes to sports and even the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, we've, what, we've talked what, what football their say? whole lives, yeah. but, um, you know, over the years I learned, I was probably the hardest on Max, but over the years you learn to try to coach through their coaches. Mm-hmm. You put them in a good environment with other great coaches and good people, more importantly, when they're younger. And, uh, and you, you know, if you have something to say, you talk to their coach on the side and then let their coach mm-hmm. tell them. I don't want to really interfere with what's going on there. Wow. But, you know, over the dinner table, in the car ride, on the way home, you know, when you have knowledge about the game, you want to share it with your kids. But they have to want the knowledge. Christian McCaffrey went on to say that his dad will call him and he'll say, well, what, what did you see on that third down play? And he goes, I know what he's saying. Yeah, I screwed something up. You know, and it, so it's an interesting thing to have a dad who's played in a Super Bowl. And, you know, the, frankly, Ed McCaffrey played for, you know, Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan's dad. Mike Shanahan coached Ed McCaffrey. Now you've got Christian McCaffrey coached by Kyle Shanahan. It's just there's some interesting and uh, weird storylines and parallels. What's the best outcome for the NFL? Is it healthy for the Chiefs to have a dynasty, or would a new world champion be good for the NFL? 503-417-7575. You tell me what you think would be good for sports. What would be good for the game? Forget my rooting interest. Forget your rooting interest. What do you think the NFL needs to happen on Sunday? You tell me. I would love to see... The dynasty talk continue with the Chiefs. So okay. I would like Patrick Mahomes to do what he's always done. He, had, he doesn't have to do anything extra. He's already dynamic in his own right. But I would love for them to play Kadarius Tony to take some of the pressure off of him and add another component to that to them, for them offensively. I, you I think he could catch? Sorry, real quick. You think he could catch Tom? Yes. Oh yeah. Really? Absolutely. absolutely. But not the ring count. Yeah, absolutely. I think he got a Is chance. That That's Chad Ochocinco saying he would like to see. Patrick Mahomes win the game. He can continue the talk about the dynasty. He can continue to chase Tom Brady. And uh, back-to-back Super Bowl champion Patrick Mahomes would be great for, for the discourse, says Ocho Cinco. Uh, what was, what's best for the NFL? A lot of people would be talking about this if there were you know, some small market team that had not been in a Super Bowl in recent years in the game. We'd be talking about, you know, is this good for the NFL for a small market team to win. The 49ers winning this game, does it do something to the NFL ecosystem that is beneficial, or does the NFL benefit more if there is a dynasty and Patrick Mahomes is steering it? 503-417-7575. Well, if the Chiefs win, that will just confirm all the conspiracy theorists who say, like, oh, this is all scripted and the Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey thing Mm. is contributing to it. So if the 49ers win, at least they could dispel that notion. I don't know. The only thing that I can compare it to is, like, the Bulls and the Celtics, right, in the NBA. Was it good that we had 
the Bulls that were so dominant and the Celtics that were so dominant was that good for or professional even the Warriors, basketball? Even the Warriors more recently. More recently. Was it, I think dynasties are good. I think dynasties draw interest. People love winners. I also think, um, you know, we love good stories, too. And if Patrick Mahomes loses this game it, and and it somehow is a very close game, it could generate a lot of interest towards is there a chip on his shoulder for next season. Um, but I don't know. You tell me. 503-417-7575 is a phone number. Let's go to the phone lines. Cam is in Eugene. Cam, what do you got? John, this weekend we need to have it all. We need to have the funny commercials. We got to have the hot wings. We have to have the cool celebrity cameos. We got to have Taylor Swift singing "America the Beautiful," uh, <laughs> the national anthem. We'll throw an Amazing Grace and half of the Super Bowl performance while all of the losers who complain about her stick out their bottom lip and wonder why the pretty girl won't call them back. And <laughs> oh. most important. The biggest thing that we absolutely must have is a sixth ring for our San Francisco 49ers and a Super Bowl MVP for the CMC Touchdown Factory. There you go. Oh, I like it. Look at He's coining it already. <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift and the NFL. To your point, Anna, the NFL's already won. The viewers are going to be there. The interest is there. It's been tremendous for the Kansas City Chiefs. There's no denying it. You know, uh, it's the only thing that that maybe it isn't good for is there will be an exhaustion point. It's, you know, if we haven't will hit be? it already, will there be? will be, <laughs> there will be, it. but I think there'll be an exhaustion point. I think people will turn on her in a greater way. Like there's a wave of people like the caller said, but I think there will be a backlash if at some point, and we, we love, we love this story. Everybody loves it. And then yeah. it's obnoxious. Yeah. You know, well, that's what we do in American culture. Like, we build people up as celebrities, and then, you know, we're all into it, and then we love to tear them down. But they, the do. Rock got booed the other night, you know? The Rock? Yeah. It, Oprah Winfrey booed. You know, it's like, you know, there's a season for all things. Martha Stewart's out of the pen. Now she's a hero. Uh, let's go to Edgar. <laughs> Edgar, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. I just, uh, I think uh, having the... Uh the Chiefs uh, win another Super Bowl and kind of create that dynasty. I think that's always good for the NFL. We always need that team that everyone needs to root against uh, for reasons. You know, you might, you know, uh, like a rival team or you just might get tired of seeing them win. But I think that's what makes the, the game fun. It's just having that one team everybody can can agree is is not a – they're not rooting for. We had that just with the Patriots and – you know, before that, the Cowboys and the 49ers and even the Steelers in the 70s. So I think it's good for the game um, just to have a, a dominant team and just to see which team um, can can rise up to try to take them down. And so, um, you know, I'm, uh, and just for the game, I, I'm rooting for the 49ers. Uh, as a Chargers fan, I cannot bring myself to, uh, to root for the Chiefs. <laughs> and um, I'm a huge Brock Purdy fan as well, and I really want to see Brock Purdy uh, perform well, win a Super Bowl, and start uh, to quiet down the uh, the people that are uh, vocal be against him. Uh, yeah. Thanks for taking my call, John. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Patrick Mahomes has 14 career postseason victories. He trails Tom Brady and Joe Montana for all-time victories. Montana has 16. Brady has 35. Patrick Mahomes is not even halfway 
to Tom Brady? Why are people talking about him as in the same breath as Tom Brady? Not yet. Well, here's why. Because if the Chiefs win this game, they will repeat as Super Bowl champions, and they'll have three in five years. Only the Steelers of the 70s, the Cowboys of the 90s, and the Patriots in 2000 and the 2010s have won three Super Bowls in a five-year span. And so, well, he, he'll be about halfway to Brady if he gets this one. Brady's d- done the feat twice, three in five years. So this is a, an important one for a young, a, a youngish uh, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you're talking about a guy who is, you know, sitting there as, you know, the best player in the game. And, you know, if Patrick Mahomes can play for another, you know, eight or ten years, he's only 28, if he can pay, play for eight or ten more years, um, you know, he's got a shot to get to Brady. And, and this game's an important part of that story. You know, the way that Patrick Mahomes plays can you foresee him playing 10 mm-hmm. more years? That I, was my question. Yeah. Because he plays a much different game. I mean, I'm not clearly the expert here, but doesn't he play a much different game than Tom Brady? It is. It's much more athletic, and like I could see the wear and tear getting to him more. I said it when he had his bad ankle, you know, because he basically won a Super Bowl with a bad ankle. Yeah. But, I, you know, if he loses a step, he's a different player. And all of a sudden, some of those elusive, wonderful plays that he's making are they're sacks. They don't look as pretty. Uh, but I've you know I saw a couple of times this year where I thought he didn't quite look like the Patrick Mahomes of the past, and the Bills did that to him in the middle of the season in a game the Bills should have won. And but I also think he is on a team that is not as good around him as some of the other teams that he's had. I think this is his weakest supporting cast on the offensive side, and they've had some games this year, including Travis Kelsey. They just had some games where um, there have been a bunch of drops. But if you know, but isn't it if he wins the Super Bowl this season, doesn't it kind of prove, like, he can win even with subpar talent? And so that yeah. that would mean the Brady record is in range for sure because yeah. th- this isn't a great offense, but if he can win this, this Super Bowl, I mean, he doesn't need that much firepower in offense. I think it's an important one because if he wins it, he's about halfway to Brady. Okay. You know, he's halfway in wins and he's done the three and five years thing. Brady did that twice and he'll have done it once. But the the bigger question I have is like, Andy Reid's going to go here at some point. This might be Andy Reid's last Super Bowl. We don't know. Andy Reid in the postgame could retire. 65 years old. Randy Reid, I don't think, is going to coach for 10 or 12 more years. But how many can Patrick Mahomes win in a short time? I think it's a. Really important conversation. Uh, Pat's on McLaughlin Boulevard. Pat, got to be quick. Go ahead. you got about 30 seconds. Hey, um, John, I was wondering if you heard that Billy Jack Haynes is, uh, is up for a murder charge. Is that something you heard? I, uh, I have not heard that. I have not heard that. Yeah, he... And, Stephen, have you heard that? It's a little off topic, Pat, but I, I'll look it up and we'll figure it out uh, during the break. Any got any news on that? Billy Jack Haynes? No? Retired pro wrestler? I don't know. We'll find that out. It could be in the 5 at 5 for all I know. It's not currently. <laughs> Anna's going to scramble during the break <laughs> and find that out. Um, we'll figure that out. But uh, in the meantime, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, let's get back on topic in the 5 o'clock hour. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the BFT. We'll get to the 5 at 5, but uh, our research team has been working on that hot tip that we got last hour. And it, it does turn out that police responded 
to a call this morning in the Lentz neighborhood, and an 85-year-old woman was uh, revealed as the the victim of a fatal shooting. The 85-year-old woman is identified, has been identified by Portland police as Jeanette Beecraft, 85. Now, our uh, research team during the break did a little research on Jeanette Beecraft, found out that Jeanette had a son named Todd. Todd was best friends with Billy Jack Haynes, the retired professional wrestler. Now, when Todd's father passed away, his mother, Jeanette, married Billy Jack. True story. Now, uh, I don't have this. I haven't talked to Portland police. But uh, there is a male suspect who is in custody who is also living at the address. And so a lot of uh, logic would point you in the direction of Billy Jack Haynes as being that person who may be in custody. So does that help? Does that answer the question? Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Shed some light on that situation. How, sure. how, let's say back in the day you're working in the TV newsroom. How careful you have to be with reporting that kind of stuff? Real careful. <laughs> you see how I was just connecting dots there? Yeah, yeah. That, that uh, Jeanette had a husband, husband passed away. Uh-huh. Her son, Todd, who's best friends with Billy Jack. Uh, Mom, Jeanette, and Billy Jack got married. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, that's okay, that's a whole other... Uh, yeah, that's, that's another segment. That's a, co- a complicated family tree there. It's another segment, yeah. but it, it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. And, I mean, 80, somebody, somebody got shot, and that's not good. So uh, that's where we are on that front. Thanks for bringing me up on this Friday. And uh, but you know, I look, I uh, I want to focus on the Super Bowl in this hour. We're not going to get a chance to talk about this game any other time. Stephen and I are going to give our final picks. Anna's going to do her five at five. We got great sound from Punch It Audio coming up. But let's begin with the five, five, five at five, five. The five. Anna has scoured the earth for the five best, most interesting, amazing stories. To me. Number one. You can't qualify that to me. It's my judgment call on these, so, you know, you can judge them too. Um, They're still talking about that fire alarm that went off uh, at 6 a.m. at the 49ers team hotel outside of Las Vegas. And I just want to bring this up again because... We're not the only ones that were suspicious about it. Uh, did fact, Andy Reid do this? Did Andy Reid They caught do Andy Reid in the stairwell? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Surveillance video of him just casually <laughs> pulling a fire alarm. Running for it. Uh, McCaffrey indicates that there may have been some gamesmanship going on with this alarm. He doesn't believe it's an accident. He says, I think there's no way it's random. It's part of it. It's just more wood thrown on the fire. Niners are rallying around this. And by the way, the alarm went off for 18 minutes. 18. 18 minutes of that. 
Could you sleep through that? No. You could try. You could try. You could try. Six o'clock in the morning, though. I think that it's poor form because if I'm going to do this to the Niners or anybody else, six o'clock's a little late to try to disrupt their sleep. Well, don't you do it on Sunday morning, too? I would have done it the day before (laughs) because the sleep study people like Chip Kelly will tell you it's the night before the night before that you need the good sleep. So if you're... You know, if you're at a sleep deficit, you can get by it for one day. So I think you'd want to do it. You'd want to do it tonight. It'd be the Friday night sleep. Maybe it'll happen again. Nick Bosa is agreeing with McCaffrey. He says this wasn't the first time there have been curious hotel shenanigans when they were on the road. Uh, Bosa said he sure somebody did this. It reminded him. (laughs) Bosa Bosa is so. I don't want to insult him. Bosa is. So aware. <laughs> he probably sounded like, I'm sure somebody did it. Um, it said, he said it reminded him of Philly when they had construction going on early in the morning. They were demolishing a bridge right outside their hotel. He says, we haven't had the best luck, but no excuses. Why, is, why, is, you know, why doesn't Bosa have a better personality? He's just, uh, he, he doesn't need to. <laughs> He, he, but when he talks, it's like, I I want him to be so much more interesting. Steven, have you heard him interviewed? He's a real bro. Like, that's his problem. So, yeah, I have. I, he's too bro for me. Bore, and he's boring. He's a boring bro. And he's, it's just, it's not great. You know, I'm going to try to find a little bit of sound here from uh, one of the best defensive players in the league. <laughs> talking about, I don't know. Like, all right, here he is. Uh. Here he is talking about, you know, how it's great to be playing at home. Uh, It's awesome. Just uh, being in my hometown where I grew up, uh, where all my friends and family live. Uh, Couldn't couldn't pick a better place to be for my first Super Bowl. There he is. Here he's talking about. (laughs) Here he's fired. He's not not a hype guy. Here he's talking about the faith that he has in his defensive teammates. I'm confident in our defense for sure. Uh, Obviously, it's going to be a new challenge. We haven't faced them yet, so it's a, of course is a new challenge. But uh, I think we're up for it, and we're excited for it. He's really excited, and here's advice he has uh, against Mahomes. He definitely told me that you, you can't just rush as a, a single rusher; you got to rush as a unit. Stay in your lanes and don't let them get out of the pocket. Stay in your lanes, coming from his brother. <laughs> so he won't be joining TV when he retires. <laughs> Not he'll be doing. You know what he could do. He could be like, you know, Niners wanted to go back to sleep after that alarm. They should have just had Bosa call every room, talk to him for a few minutes. Just a white noise of <laughs> Bosa talking. Hey, I'm really sorry. The alarm went off. <laughs> Number two. Done a great job advertising for Kim Kardashian's yeah. underwear line. Yeah. Um, Alicia Keys will join Usher for the Super Bowl halftime show. That's the surprise guest, I, I guess. Uh, there were rumors of it being other people, um, but it's going to be Alicia Keys. I think that adds something. Do you? How do you? Uh, how is it a surprise if we all know about it on Friday? Mm, it's just a marketing gimmick. Yeah, but it, I kind of feel bad for Usher. Why? This is the first time I've ever thought about Usher in this way. I feel like Usher really got kind of hosed by this Super Bowl. Why? Because it's Niners, Chiefs, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. And Usher will be doing the halftime thing. He's not getting the run that normal halftime show entertainment gets because of her. Mm. And I think 
she kind of takes the oxygen out of the room. We saw it at the Grammys. The, the Grammys did a really good job of not having – she wasn't in her seat when it started. Um, you know, here came uh, Trevor Noah as the MC. He did a really good job doing his opening monologue, and he did a really good job not talking about her mm-hmm. for several minutes. Yeah. And he was great because of it because it would have been so gratuitous and so easy just to do the cutaway of her and her and her, and he didn't. He waited and waited. You know, it's the old make them laugh, make them cry, but first make them wait. The problem Usher's having here is nobody's thinking about him. Nobody's talking about him. This should have been his Super Bowl, too. I feel bad for Usher. Hmm. How's that for a take? Okay. Number three. I got to know what you guys think about this. Um, There's some people that are surprised. The Joe Flacco edged out DeMar Hamlin for comeback player of the year. He earned 13 first-placed votes and 151 total votes, edging out Hamlin's 21 first-placed votes and 140 total points in the award voting. So it's not like, you know, it was a runaway race. It was pretty close. But uh, I don't know. He beats out the guy that went into cardiac arrest on the field. You know, I don't know. What do you think? I I, I don't know. I he got thirteen first place votes. Eight voters left Hamlin off the ballot altogether. Hmm. Now Flacco has said after the season he would have voted for Hamlin, but I think that's the cool thing to say. Mm-hmm. But is it just possible that? Flacco played a lot more and had a more influential role than DeMar Hamlin. And everybody kind of went, Hamlin got so much attention for his comeback, deservedly so. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Then that that, that kind of went full circle with him returning to the stadium and being back in uniform. And, and maybe it was somebody else's turn. I, I don't know. Steven, how did you read that vote? I thought it was the right decision. Um, I get that we've never seen someone basically die on the field and then come back like that is the ultimate comeback story but he did also only play 17 snaps on defense all season long like mm-hmm. he like he was a special teams guy which is fine he only played in five games this season he had two tackles like yeah he i mean he played yes he was on the team but he didn't have like he didn't had no impact on the actual game so i think the reason that flacco was literally just on his couch came out led a team to the playoffs like i would give the nod to flacco but it is a great story for Hamlin. Like, it makes a lot of sense. But, I mean, he just there, – there really was no comeback. Like, he barely played. But Flacco said he wasn't sure what he was coming back from. Like, he said, I didn't – you know, <laughs> He was, came back he from was, sucking. He, he yeah. sucked, and now he's, <laughs> he's He literally said, I'm just coming back from being old and not being on a team for a couple months. <laughs> well. I want, an award, I want to win an award for that. I want a comeback award. If you get the comeback – person or player of the year award and you're like i wasn't hurt last year i was just sitting around i just sucked nobody wanted me (laughs) number four i want a a mother's award for just you know the comeback mother of the year and i got the comeback player have a bad mother year and then the next year will be the comeback mother of the year exactly exactly where's my trophy um nfl's gonna play its first ever game in spain they're really pushing this international thing. You know, apparently they feel like they've just saturated the U.S. market and maybe even North America. They're having to travel across the pond now. They're going to hold a 2025 regular season game at Real Madrid's stadium. 
So they're already saying that the Eagles are going to play in Brazil in this upcoming season. Yeah, and they haven't said who is actually going to be playing in Spain. So you get um, UK, Mexico, Germany, Brazil, and Spain now, and uh, all by design. NFL owners in December, they voted to expand the number of games played internationally every year. So, you know, they had four games, now now up to eight starting in 2025. What are they thinking about? Money. They're thinking about new markets, new partners, new fans wearing their jerseys, new people falling in love with the NFL and, you know, uh, bringing uh, 13 million fans potentially in Spain and uh, partnering with Real Madrid. Um, I get it. They're chasing the money. and uh, Well, and the infrastructure is there. Like, the yeah. stadiums already exist. So it's not, you know, they can just use all these soccer stadiums, these football stadiums around the world. But do you think it's going to work? Like, I just, I don't know why I'm so skeptical that people outside of the U.S. or maybe even North America are really going to buy in and be that interested. I, I, maybe I'm naive. I think the NBA started this by going international with their broadcast of the NBA Finals and certainly their, the league going with more international players. It just becomes more appealing. There's global media rights. It's all about media rights. And, you know, you, you, you could just sit here and pander to the viewers in the United States, 25 million people who will tune into a big-time playoff game or – you can go, hey, there's 14 million more people in Spain. And and here's the thing. They have not gone to Australia, but I bet they will. And they haven't gone to Asia. I find that interesting, that the NFL has not done what the NBA did right out of the gates. The NBA went right after China, right to Japan. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if the NFL just steers clear of Asia. Or are they just a little leery? What's going You uh, You know, come on. <laughs> come on. Because I'm Asian. Well, you pay, you're tracking what's I'm going on in China and Taiwan all the time. It's not because you're Asian. It's because you're <laughs> on it. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I, I'm not going to. I don't know. I, I guess I'll have to ask, like, you know, my cousins that live in Taiwan because they track the NBA. They know, like, who's on the Blazers. They, yeah, they know. Yeah, you were in Taiwan. And yes. You, you texted me. They are obsessed me. with the NBA. Like, my little cousin who's, like, 14 all he wanted for Christmas was a, a LeBron outfit, like not just the jersey, but he wanted like the legit shorts. That's so all I wanted. That he was asking you all kinds of NBA questions. Yeah. Well, I I just think because the politics got the NBA in hot water, the NFL will wait a little bit. But Spain is ripe. They've gone to Germany. They and here's the thing: they have already said if this works out in Spain, they'll come back. Mm-hmm. So I think you could see an international series all season long, not just occasional. Every week, I think someday in the NFL, you're going to have a game played in Europe. Will there ever be like a Super Bowl or a playoff game over uh, overseas? I think they probably would move a Super Bowl. I don't think they'd do a playoff game because somebody's going to give up a home field advantage. A but Super Bowl in Europe? I, it's un-American. I know it. This but is our no. game. It's un-American. USA. But... Can you imagine? No, I can't. At Wembley Stadium? No, I can't. That's ridiculous. Truly a world championship. Finally. Number five. Well, 
Shadur Sanders is just uh, casually explaining why he would be the first quarterback selected in the 2024 NFL draft. This coming draft? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What do you say? Well, he'll be playing, you know, for his dad once again in the fall with the Buffaloes trying to do better than 4-8 and eight, as he, they did this wait, season. But he's saying he would be the first quarterback playing. He'd be the first pick. Not Caleb Williams, not Drake May. He would be the first pick. Here are his words. I am biased, but I don't see a quarterback that's better than me. I don't see a quarterback that went through as much adversity as me that had four offensive coordinators in four years. Coming from a historically black uh, university, coming to a Power 5 program, having real pressure on me, a lot of people don't understand. That's a lot more adversity than you think just even being the son of Deion Sanders. I think that Shador will play in the NFL someday. I don't think Shador is qualified to be a general manager based on his statement. Caleb Williams is such a better player. Drake May's a better player. Michael Penix Jr. is a better player. Bo Nix. Bo Nix would uh, it gives me a little pause. I think I wouldn't take Bo Nix in the first round unless I was a team picking late in the first round and I could afford to sit Bo Nix for a season. Is I think there's should do a first round pick in your mind. Not this year. Not that. Not. I don't think he goes in the first round this year. Yeah, if he was in the draft, yeah. No, uh, so I think he's... But I love his confidence. I mean, come on. What's he going to say if he's asked that? Well, that's what he said. He said, you put any of those guys in my situation, they're not doing that. I, I disagree. Justin Herbert had the exact situation and outplayed him in every way. You know, Herbert played for three different head coaches in four years in college and had better, far better numbers than Shadur Sanders. He says the most pressure and the safest bet is me. Well, we'll see how it goes. I think they'll be better next year. Jaden Daniels is a better player than him. J.J. McCarthy's better player than him. I don't see it. But, and by the way, he's, he, but is he trying to say that being the son of Deion Sanders is a disadvantage? Did he, like, that's adversity? <laughs> I think he's talking about it in terms of pressure. Okay. The pressure, the All microscope. Right. It comes the with microscope. it comes with the Louis Vuitton bag, okay, and the opportunity to be the starter and the head coach who's building the offense around you because you're his son. Come on, that Shador. Come on, <laughs> like I I like Shador's game. I am excited to see what he does. I think Colorado and Arizona are gonna and Utah are gonna dominate the Big Twelve, but let's not get out of hand, okay. He is uh, not better than those guys that are going to be picked in front. I, I, I'm just thinking Jaden Daniels, Michael Penix, Caleb Williams. I'm, I would not even think about Shador in front of those guys. You not even consider it. All right, more ahead, plus punch and audio. Leave it here. You know, as a uh, media member, I don't really get to enjoy being a fan in the way I did when I was a kid, or maybe even as some of you do, if you're Blazers or you're Seahawks or – Frankly, if your Chiefs, uh, you know, win a big game or win a Super Bowl, I don't quite get to enjoy it as much. I, um, because I think there's part of me as a fan that, you know, once you've kind of been on this side of the fence and you see the athletes and you, you know, I I had grown up 
rooting for Joe Montana and then being at a 49er training camp where Joe Montana was there and uh, interviewing him and going, gosh, you, you know, he's not quite what I would have thought he would be in person. Or Barry Bonds, certainly, when I, I was covering the Giants in 2000, 2001, I had, uh, you know, spent my college years really rooting for Barry Bonds, how great he is. And then he's kind of a jerk, you know. And so you kind of get a distaste on this side of the fence for it. And I, I'll be honest, like seeing these 49ers on this run has been as close as I can get to really being a fan and enjoying it and trying to relate. Um, I I noted last night that the Trailblazers had a double-digit lead at home against the Pistons. And I was feeling kind of good for Blazer fans, uh, you know, watching in the second half. Like, oh, you know what? There's not very many people in the arena, but good for them. You're getting a good quality show, and their team showed up to play after the trade deadline. And you know, which isn't easy for some guys, especially if you're being your hope that your your hope is that you get traded to a contender. But uh, it got me thinking, like you know, how much fun it would be to see your team and cover your team, even going on a championship run. Like I got to go see Washington play for the national championship this year. It was cool, but it wasn't like if if it were Oregon or Oregon State in our region, there would be a lot more enthusiasm. It wouldn't, you know, I've covered. A bunch of NBA Finals games. But, and I've always looked over at like the San Antonio Spurs writers and thought, gosh, how much fun would it be to cover a team that's that good and a fan base that that's, that's that excited about the team? Well, the Blazers blow it last night. They end up losing the game in overtime. Steven, you watched it. You and I were texting as they were blowing the lead. But it was, um, you know, a reminder to me like how far away. This market feels from winning a championship. And Kansas City fans and San Francisco, real 49er fans are, you know, that are in the Bay Area, they might get to have a parade. They might get to really enjoy the euphoria of their team winning. 50-50 shot, probably, for those two fan bases on Sunday. But the Blazers are just so damn far away. And I think we're really venturing into uh, a dangerous kind of era of Blazers basketball. And the the front office of the Blazers is not going to want to hear me say this. But I'm going to say it. Because, like, I feel like the Blazers organization sold out with their deal with Comcast Sportsnet Northwest years ago. Games stopped being locally televised. You had to have the Comcast package. They've now gone to this root sports thing that's kind of a nightmare. The silver lining has been the team hasn't been great. And so maybe you don't feel like you're missing out because the team's not great. Uh, but, you know, they've been increasingly difficult to consistently watch just from a sheer logistical standpoint. And also the aesthetics of this team have not been pretty. This is not a pretty and a fun and enjoyable diversion. Uh, a lot of the Blazers last decade has felt like last night. You know, hey, they're leading, they're doing good, and at what point are they going to rip the rug out from under you and blow this game? And where is this going anyway? And there's a there's a bit of fan apathy that has set in. But I think they're they're flying close to the sun, so to speak, with young fans in particular who have not consistently been able to watch the team and have frankly lost connection with the team. And now you have a team that doesn't really have a, a true star player 
as the face of the franchise. Damian Lillard's gone. He's gone somewhere else. And I think if this goes on for too much longer, you run a risk of having a lot of your fans forget what, you know, 1977 felt like, or maybe they weren't even alive. You know, if you were born after 1977, say you're like a 40-year-old or a 35-year-old or a 28-year-old, you have no idea what a parade feels like in downtown Portland. You weren't hanging off the light posts. You're, you know, you have to ask your parents or your grandparents or the old guy at work and say, hey, what was that like in 77 when the Blazers won it all? And so I think there's a real risk here as the Blazers, you know, essentially get to the trade deadline and, and uh, you know, they were, uh, they were, say they were looking for some value and didn't really do anything. And, you know, I don't think there was a big outrage or a big uproar from the, from the Blazers fan base because I don't think the fan base is plugged in. I think you have, you really have the worst thing if you're the Blazers. You don't have an angry fan base. You don't have a happy fan base. You have a fan base that is apathetic. And, and checked out and doesn't believe in you and is uh, mildly disinterested. And, I, and, and the people who went to the game last night, I, I, I just respect and appreciate that so much because I know that's a slog if you're going to the arena and you're going, hey, I'm just going to see an event. That's why you're going to the arena. Or I'm going to see the Blazers' young players. Or I'm going to see the other, the opposing team. In, in last night's case, it was the, the the Detroit Pistons, and and instead, you know, you're you're just looking for other reasons to go to the arena, and you're not going to the arena because you go, I love this team, I gotta see this team, and I think the Blazers, you know, are in a bad position right now, and it's amplified this weekend, because there's a Super Bowl happening on Sunday, and fans in Kansas City, small market are going to go bananas for their team in the run-up to the game. And if they win it, they're going to have a parade, and it's going to be excitement in Kansas City. And if the Niners win it, there's going to be excitement in the Bay Area. There's going to be a parade. There's going to be a lot of enthusiasm. And we're all going to be sitting back going, uh, how much longer do we have to wait for one of those? And it's kind of sad to me. Uh, now, Joe Cronin, Blazers general manager, you know, was asked about, but, you know, on the on the trade deadline, he was asked how much longer should fans be prepared to to be rebuilding. Like, how long is the rebuild going to go on? Here's Joe Cronin, the Blazers general manager. Um, not yet. I know we want to continue to grow and continue to progress. We don't want to take any more steps back, and that was part of our approach at this trade deadline. Like, I would say we were looking more to acquire a guy than get off of a guy. But at the same time, I don't want to speed it up too much. I want to give these guys a chance to grow and develop, and um, you know, not not overly swing here in order to chase a playoff spot that's unrealistic or a playoff spot that's going to get us thumped right away. I want to make sure this is a quality build that is very sustainable. I think he's honest there. I I mean, I appreciate that because he's not blowing smoke. I think he's I think he's trying to say. There's no point in making the playoffs. There's no point in trying to, you know, try to do uh, do a little better and you know do seven or eight or ten games better in the standings because we make a move. Um, better to just kind of ride this out, let this roster marinate, use our draft picks, hope the Warriors finish like with a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth worst record in the NBA. You know, your top four protected pick. You've got the Warriors pick. 
probably not going to be a top four pick, but if could it be a lottery pick? It could be. The Warriors spiral here a little bit more. But I think Cronin is saying, like, this is kind of who we are right now, and there was no point in making a move. But, Stephen, I, I, I think about your kids, like, in their lifetime, Blazers haven't been great. It And this season in particular is a bit of a downer. 100%, yeah. And it just going back to a couple of games ago, when Dame was back in town against the Bucks, you saw the lifeblood of the fan base come back, and it was a sellout crowd, and it was really loud, and you saw the intensity and how good these fans can be. And then you look at the exact opposite of what it was last night. You know, I had a guy text me a picture of the crowd right before the game, and there was nobody. There's nobody there. And it's understandable. It's a Thursday night against the Pistons who weren't very good. But it shouldn't be like that. And and there's been times when the Blazers are just a playoff team and that Moda Center is, you know, crowded up you know, on a Thursday against whoever, it doesn't matter. So it's tough because yeah, like with my kids, my oldest is nine years old. He he's only seen the Blazers, you know, make the Western Conference Finals the one year, but they weren't really a threat. But after that it's like playoffs and then get swept in the first round. Playoffs swept in the first round. Now they don't make the playoffs and now they're down in the gutter. And if you're looking at Joe Cronin, he's going to have to hope that one of either Shaden Sharp or Scoot Henderson turns into a superstar or else this rebuild is going to take even longer. But that's kind of how the Blazers are going to have to build their team is through the draft and hit that superstar that way. It's a, it's a tough road. It's going to be a tough road to go up. But I think right now the Blazers are on to they have to rebuild and they've turned the page on the Damian Lillard era and they're starting a new era. But it's going to take a little bit longer than I think fans are going to want. And, and it'll be interesting to see if there are a lot of fans still around in two, three years when the Blazers are hopefully ready to compete. I just don't know how the fan could be the same because the connection, you know, maybe I'm naive, but the connection that I think fans have with their team is, you know, it starts with being able to see the team. And and I, I think we've got a generation of fans, and especially fans in their 20s and younger, who just haven't consistently seen the team on television you don't have the local games on regular TV anymore. If your parents are not locked into giving you the, you know, the package that has Root Sports or uh, includes the Blazers, then you're not you're not getting them and you're not seeing them. And I just wonder over a decade or 22 decades, you know, do, at what point does that thing become a detriment to your to your franchise and you know, Blazer fans of the 90s saw the team all the time and it was a good product and so it's very easy to glue to it but if you can't even see the team how do you connect with it and i just like i you know people will say well if the team was better more people would see it i'm not convinced that the foundation is there for fans to be as rabid as they were back in the day i think the franchise has been so badly mismanaged to the point where fans are kind of okay not seeing the blazers if they, I know they're there. If I want to go to go to a game, then they go to a game on an occasional time, or they'll turn, they'll go in search of them to watch them. If Damian Lillard's in town, and they want to see the game. But I just don't think on a consistent, regular basis, fans are seeking the Blazers out and watching them on a night-to-night basis. And I can tell in my ecosystem, nobody's talking about him. Yeah, and there's no trust between the fan base and management, whether that's ownership and Burt Cole, Jody Allen, or with Joe Cronin and Chauncey Billups. Like, there's no trust between any of it. And it goes back to even to Neil O'Shea. Like, the decisions that he made when they actually had a guy like Damian Lillard who fans loved and they wanted to build around, he never put a team even close to contending around him. He never took that big swing. And so now that there's no Damian Lillard, 
how can you trust you know Joe Cronin when a lot of fans love Dame and he's willing to trade him, you know, trade the franchise guy? So there's just no trust in what this franchise has done, and I think you're right that does hurt, especially with the adults. Like even if the kids want to watch it. The adults are looking at the fan, at the at management, and saying, I, "I don't, I don't want to support these guys. Like they've done nothing that has, uh, you know, made it made it a better product for me." And so, yeah, it, it, and then it's not on TV. Like you can't necessarily watch it. Like even when I watch the games, like I have to stream it. I have to stream it on, you know, on my uh, PS4 off the internet rather than because okay. I don't have Root Sports. So, like, is that what you did last night? That's what I did last night. Yeah. You know, th- that's what I do usually if the game's on Root Sports. And so it's like. And a lot of times you don't get to choose if it's, you get the Blazer broadcast or the opponent's, opponent's broadcast, so they don't even know who the announcers are. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I grew up with Sean's, I knew Sean's, and that was the man. Like, it's, it's really hard. I think the Blazers have really put themselves in a hole with the fact that they aren't very good, and you're right, with that TV deal with Root Sports, it's been a real disaster for a lot of fans. But if you're not good, you better be accessible. You know, and, and you're, they're neither. And that's the thing that I really wrestle with as I'm going – even if the Blazers got a little better, if they, you know, if they became a little better, the enthusiasm would grow. I'm not sure that they can capture the fans that just have grown up not caring about them and don't include them in the ecosystem. And, you know, we used to do a feature on this show. The show's been on air 17, 18 years. I don't even remember. But we used to do a feature back in the day where we would go, hey, here's the today's call of the day. And I've saved some of the call of the days from, from the past. Here's a call I got in 2014, 10 years ago. Okay, It's a Blazer fan who remembered watching the Blazers run to the title in 77. Just listen. Two quick memories. One uh, is that exact same game. I was 12 years old. My parents had hosted a friend's wedding the night before, and, and they actually went to the game. My brother and I were sitting in that wonderful shag carpeting just devouring all the food left over from that wedding, watching those final moments, <laughs> jumping up and down by ourselves, watching that game. Okay, that kind of memory. I just don't know if if today's fan base is going to say that or they're going to go, oh, I tried to boot up the PS4. I couldn't get the game. Well, we just followed it on Twitter. Go Blazers. You know, it's just it's not the same. I think that when this franchise does eventually sell, Whoever takes it over has got a great opportunity, but they've got to do a total reboot. They got to rebrand. They got to reconnect with fans. They got to address the issue of accessibility of the broadcast. They got to address the product, the quality of the product on the floor. But it, uh, I have no faith in Jody Allen, Burt Cold, to to uh, you know rejuvenate the uh, the franchise. So it's going to take a sale. I hope it happens sooner rather than later because I think Blazer fans deserve it. Punch and audio is coming up. I wrote twice today at johnconzano.com, once about Chip Kelly's decision leaving UCLA for Ohio State and what it means, the backstory on it, the tentacles of it. Uh, the other piece I filed this morning was about all of the loose ends that the Pac-12 conference faces, a lot of loose ends. Uh, who owns the intellectual property? Who owns the Bill Walton clips? Who owns the Jackie Robinson clips? Uh, if the Big Ten Network wants to show video of USC running back Reggie Bush do they have to uh, pay a rights fee to the Pac-12? Uh, the Pac-12 owns it, but I am told by sources that, that this is all part of a negotiation. Uh, if you want to read that, go to johnconzano.com. In the meantime, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. 
You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with the Super Bowl and finish with the Super Bowl. How about Lewis Riddick? Why people will never give Brock Purdy credit. Here's Riddick. Punch it. We, we want our quarterbacks now to be the guys who do Patrick stuff. We become drunk with that, intoxicated with the guys who can throw it with their left hand, throw a no-look pass, throw it behind their back, throw it between their legs, throw it you know, 70 miles. But we go, but what about the guy who led the league in total QBR, led the league in total QBR against the Blitz, led the league in total QBR um, against pressure, uh, yards per attempt, efficiency ratings, completion percentage, above expectation. oh, forget that. I just want to look at how he looks and how he plays. And that's why we won't ever give it to him the way he deserves. And then, of course, being Mr. Irrelevant, people think, well, he was Mr. Irrelevant for a reason. So you don't think ever the general managers ever make a mistake? Mm. Of course they do. I think Brock Purdy was awfully fortunate to get picked by the 49ers where he was selected. That was a 49ers compensatory draft pick that they picked up because they've lost so many assistant coaches that have been hired away. Robert Sala, Demeco Ryans, hired away as head coaches in other places. So I I don't know. I, I just think Brock Purdy benefited from it, and I don't think Brock Purdy's too worried about it. But if you want to compare him to Patrick Mahomes, my gosh, like, you know, there's maybe two or three quarterbacks in the league that you would hold up and say, hey, um, these are guys that that uh, make you think they can win the game almost on their own. Well, Patrick Mahomes is the front of the line right now. But isn't that what makes Patrick Mahomes so special is that he can make those special plays, yet he also can make them in football. It's in every sport. We're just looking for the latest YouTube highlight, the latest Twitter highlight. Like, Brock Purdy gets the job done for the most part. And I think Patrick Mahomes, like, yeah, he'll give you the left-handed pass, but he also makes, you know, the, the run on third and six where he gets a first down. I think that's the difference between, like, you know, the, the elite superstars and just, you know, those uh, YouTube players. It's kind of like a Josh Allen, I would say. Yeah, Joe Montana had a great conversation where he was talking about, like, you know, when he had John Taylor as a wide receiver, you know, where John Taylor took a couple of quick slants and went 80 or 90 yards for a touchdown. Montana talked about it. Punch it. Don't do anything different than you've been doing. I mean, I think I like what he's been doing. He, he has found a way to understand what that offense is about, and the people around him can only make him better. You know, his job is to find a way to get the ball to those guys. I mean, that's typically how Bill's offense worked when we had Jerry and John Taylor. I mean, those guys could – John Taylor goes twice over 90-plus in the Ram game. I threw two seven-yard passes on a slant. <laughs> it, but in the books, yeah. I got 190 yards yeah. of passing and two touchdowns. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's the comparison that Brock Purdy needs is that – Joe Montana on those teams was dumping the ball off the backs. He was uh, throwing underneath to uh, Dwight Clark. He was going down the field to Jerry Rice and John Taylor when he had those guys. And you know, it's just a different plan. It's a different attack. Uh, it'd be fun to see both of these things uh, manifest themselves on the field. But Baker Mayfield lined up, uh, you know, on the Brock Purdy side of the equation. If you're executing the system to what's being called and, and what you're being asked to do, people can slap a game manager title on it, but you're executing at a very high level. That's game changing. And so if you're able to do it consistently like Brock has done, 
that's that's an elite level of quarterback play, and you can't ask for much else. And so that's I don't know. I'm a big fan of Brock. Obviously, short little quarterbacks. We we all we try and stick together <laughs> with the gritty attitude, the chips on our shoulder. But no, I'm I'm a fan of his, and um, I don't think he's a game manager. Look, uh, I I disagree a little bit. I think he is a little bit of a game manager, but I'm I think that's his role. J.J. Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver. I asked him on this show how experience helps in a big game like a Super Bowl. Here's Burden. Keep in mind, this would be the third Super Bowl championship in five seasons for the Chiefs if they can win on Sunday. Punch it. It makes a big difference because when you got guys who've been there, done that, you know, Patrick, you got Travis, obviously even the coach too, those guys know how to prepare the newer guys, prepare the younger guys, and help them understand what it's going to take to maintain your composer, composure but still raise your level of play in this big game. And so when you're, you know, when you're in the huddle and you can look over and see, it's kind of like what I used to do with Joe Montana. You look over and you see a guy that has been there, done that. It just kind of calms you. It gives you that confidence to know that you just got to do your job because he's going to do his job. It's a great point by Burden, and I think the Chiefs have that. If there's another advantage in addition to Patrick Mahomes that Kansas City has in this game, it's it's frankly that they were there a year ago. A lot of the players were are back, and you know you've got Andy Reid, who's this is no big deal for him. Chiefs come into this game and they go, "Hey, we'll just do what we did last year, same protocol." Like there's just a uh, blueprint here that in an imprint that success makes on people. Travis Kelsey said he wants this Super Bowl more than any game ever in his life. Punch it. I'll tell you what, man. I uh, I leaned on my teammates more than I ever have, and uh, it's, it's been absolute. <laughs> Y'all are firing me up. Make me want to play right now, baby. <laughs> I love the booze more than I love the cheers, baby. Keep them coming, Niners gang. Keep them coming. I'll tell you what, man, I, I, I rally around the guys around me, man. We've, we've had a lot of ups and downs this year, and it's only made us stronger and that much more uh, willing to fight for each other. And I, I'll tell you what, I love this group, and I, I want this one more than I ever wanted one in my life. Well, there were some Niner fans there, but I also kind of wonder if it was Raider fans that were uh, booing Travis Kelsey. Andy Reid alluded to it when he went to talk. Punch it. Well, it's a great, it's a great week in a great city. Uh, we appreciate the hospitality from the the Raiders and Raider fans because that relationship is not the best always <laughs> between teams but they've, they've uh, welcomed us in and and we appreciate that so and then I get to play against this guy here who's a great one man and so um, I appreciate that opportunity Andy Reid will this be his last game Steven is this Andy Reid's last game no, I don't think so. I, I he's a t- I feel like he's the type of guy that just loves coaching, and he's so good. And the fact that he has Patrick Mahomes, like he always is going to have a chance to win. And so I, I think a lot of times it's about the legacy. Like I wouldn't want to retire if I can get back to the Super Bowl another season, and you know to try to get a get even higher up there in the legacy mark. So no, I don't think so. He wins on Sunday. He'll be the fifth head coach with three wins in the Super Bowl. And sixty-five years old will turn. Uh, 66 in March. I think he sticks around. I don't think this is it for him. Meanwhile, uh, let's go to uh, George Kittle. He says he believes in Brock Purdy. Punch it. You know, Brock, what he does at a really, really high level, he shows up every single day. He's the same guy. He's very consistent. He has a routine. He's had a routine since uh, since he's been a rookie, and that's one of the most important things. 
And I think um, why he won the locker room over so well is I think the locker room liked him to start. Uh, but then when he got his opportunity, when he first stepped into the huddle, he was confident. Uh, he was just confident in his own ability, and it just kind of raised level of confidence behind us. And so it was just you just knew that the kid loved ball, and he loved to be out there with his teammates. And so that's why we believe in him. All right, there it is, George Kittle talking about the game. Now, Stephen, uh, on the record, your pick for the Super Bowl. Uh, I'm going to go with the Niners winning over the Chiefs. I think it's going to be a 24-20 game, so Niners cover. And the under, I love the under. All right, I'm going over 34-28 San Francisco. I think too much offense. I think they outscore Patrick Mahomes. I think We both think it's a one-score game. I think it'll be a great Super Bowl. We'll be back on Monday to break it down. Who wins it? Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Tell me who you think wins the game. And we'll, of course, have all the great sound and uh, whatever controversy emerges from Sunday's game, we will be sure to be all over it. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time. Have a great weekend, everybody.